Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. My name is Ali Rizvi, and with me uh, is Armin Navabi. Armin's uh, right here. I can see him. I can. Armin, hi. How are you? Good. He hates it when I ask that question, but anyway, whatever. <laughs> I have to. He has to acknowledge. I can't just say it. But anyway, um, so today we actually have on somebody who's a very, very good friend of mine and of uh, Armin's, and we've been following him for a very long time. But he was in the closet, um, and behind the scenes. Uh, he has been a, an ex-Muslim activist. Uh, he has mentored a lot of publicly known um, uh, ex-Muslim uh, YouTubers, podcasters, writers. And uh, he is finally out. He came out with a really explosive two-and-a-half-hour video. Um, and his name is, uh, well, he, the, most of you know him as Reason on Faith on social media, but, uh, you know, today he's coming here. It's Sahel Emmett is on the show. Finally. Hey, Sahel, how's it going? I'm doing great, Ali. I'm great. To, I'm glad to be here. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. Yeah, I feel like, you know, we're just uh, kind of talking normally and there's no audience because that's how we usually <laughs> talk. So it's really cool. Sure. So Sahel was raised in um, the minority Islamic sect of uh, Ahmadiyyat. So this is a community, the Ahmadi Muslims have been persecuted relentlessly by mainstream Muslims for a very long time, which continues on today. Um, today, uh, Sahel has come out of the closet, um, I, I, but you actually left the faith or at least started having doubts about it as, as much as 20 years ago, right? So, yeah. so I, what took you so long to decide to actually come out? Well, so I guess it's, uh, you know, in a few parts, people who um, had a chance to see even the first maybe 20, 30 minutes of my video will know that even after I had questions um, and I left, I did come back for a time because I left in a time where, you know, there's that cliche of like, you think you're the only one. It's like you and Salman Rushdie and you haven't heard of anybody else who's left. It's, you know, pre-internet forums. Um, so you don't really, it's pre-Facebook, you don't have any awareness that other people leave. And so after a couple of years, you just feel socially isolated. And I think religious communities almost accept this byproduct and run with it because it serves them. Um, and so people tend to come back and I'm thinking, you know, if nobody else has these kinds of issues, I mean, how come I seem to be the only one? Everybody else is kind of getting on with their lives. They get to be part of the community. Uh, they get married, they have families, why is it only me that's thinking about these things? So I tried to compartmentalize, and I came back for a few years. Um, I'd stay away from things dawa-related. But when you when you came back, uh, you mean you came back as um, as a believer or as just part of the community? I came back as part of the community because I longed for community. But you know, after a while, you very much you see other people praying. They're doing things. They're coming out to you know Juma prayer, and they're just fitting in and. It's hard to keep that um, barrier in your mind. Like, so what I thought is, you know what? 
maybe my questions, my doubts, the things I disagree with, you know, maybe there's just a whole other level of understanding and I don't have, I'll, I'll just put my doubts aside and I'll just sort of live my life in the community. I will, you know, I'll go through the motions, I'll pray, I'll fast as, as best as I can. And I'm going to purposely stay away from the deep theological stuff, which is going to like trigger me and take me out of the bubble because I just want to turn my brain off. I want to take the blue pill. I just want to fit in. <laughs> and so when, you know, there'd some, be some people I remember being like, hey, you know, why don't you join us? We're going to have this dawah stall. Amethyst tend to use the Urdu term, the bleak, more for the preaching. And they were like, we've got this, the bleak stall. You'd be really good. You speak well. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. Give me, you know, charity work or whatever. I'll, I'll get involved that way. So I ran blood drives. And it was my way of sort of participating, being a part of it. But I did try to, you know, go through the motions, compartmentalize my doubts, and think, you know, maybe it's above my pay grade. And I will just fit in. I'll just go through the motions and maybe kind of like Blaise Pascal, who says, you know, with Pascal's wager, like even if you don't believe, just yeah. keep doing it till you numb your mind. And, you know, through enough rote repetition, you can almost trick yourself into believing the lie. So, so what you're doing is like you're kind of uh, coming back into it and you're bringing you're getting involved in the community um, from a humanistic sort of perspective where you're doing blood drives and all of that stuff. Yeah. But but so. First of all, this is something I actually meant to say in the introduction, but I'll say it right now. The video that you made, okay, is one of the best um, summaries of the uh, of the ex-Muslim experience, or the increasing number of people who are leaving Islam. It's actually one of the best, most comprehensive um, videos or any sort of coming out message that I've seen, and it applies not only to Ahmadis, but it, it goes on, it goes into the Quran, it actually talks about mainstream Islam, because you didn't just leave Ahmadiyyat, you left Islam altogether. So you talked about a lot of Islamic arguments in general, and you talked about why Islam is something that you don't believe in anymore, and why you don't think that people should believe in it anymore. So I wanted to bring that out there. So if, if anybody's listening out there, and if you're just a, a Muslim with doubts, watch the video. Because it's not the, the Ahmadiyya or minority sect, that, that's not the point here. This is actually quite very very mainstream and i guess the second question i wanted to say you said you were triggered you said that if you came back and you got into the deep theological questions you'd you'd feel triggered um what would trigger you why would you feel triggered if you got too deep into it so for example um i think it's our human nature to be able to you know reconcile what we believe how we act how we identify with reality especially the people who you know they have a tendency to want to live in an examined life um, and so there'd be times where I'd be like, okay, let me just pray and, you know, see if I get a sign from Allah or I just, you know, feel good and go through the motions. But oftentimes I'd be in sajda, which is the sort of, you know, when you're on the ground, you're in the most sort of submissive position and you're, you're pouring your heart out. But I, then I'd remember these theological questions and I'd be like, okay, well, in, you know, certain inequality in the Quran between men and women. I'm like, why is that? Why would God do that? And so I, I'd just be angry in the prayer. So sometimes I would just trigger myself because as I'm trying to get closer, there'd be an internal sort of defense mechanism saying, what the hell? We're not going to disengage the intellect. We can't. You have to deal with this. So I'd sort of be oscillating between emotion and intellect and wanting to fit in, but not being able to deny these things. Um, but 
if I started, uh, for example, if I would gone with some of the uh, wonderful people that I knew in the community who are running a Dawa stall, and maybe there's some Christians being like, oh, what's this about? And talking about it very early into a conversation, I would have to start defending things or getting into topics that, you know, inherently I'd be trying to sell something I don't really fully buy. Or, right. you know, in some areas I don't buy at all. Um, and I think belief and fitting in, there's, uh, there's so many prongs to it. But if I start touching the, the preaching prong or the truth claims prong, I'm going to unravel this delicate balance I've tried to create for myself of just focusing on community and, and, and sort of setting the truth claims out of the picture so I don't get triggered. So, so it seems that you were more motivated, like you're leaving the faith um, seems to have been more motivated by uh, a pursuit of truth and yeah. what's real rather than a pursuit of uh, I've been treated very unjustly, I've been oppressed, and I, I want to liberate myself. Because it it's in your video, one of the things, I mean, the first thing you say in the video, you say to my Muslim brothers and sisters, um, or so I'm paraphrasing, you say, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. So, And throughout your video, you have this theme of uh, you know being very compassionate towards Muslims and for being very compassionate towards Emidy Muslims, you also have a section in the video where you have a message for uh, your Emidy um, Muslim friends and family, right? Where you say that this is not about you, and you make a very clear distinction that criticizing the ideology of Islam or the belief system does not mean that you are attacking the community. You're still very much part of the community. Um, and you're very much a part of an Amity Muslim family, right? But you have problems with the beliefs and the ideas themselves, and and you, so so it it does seem that you were really this was more of an intellectual uh, journey for you as a as a way to reconcile what you think is true rather than, um, and uh, I mean, not, it's obviously there's parts to it that are emotional, but it wasn't predominantly emotional and came out of oppression. Is is that true? Because a lot of people say, well, ex-Muslims, they just, they're just they just angry at God because you know they had some problems with them, then they came out. But it wasn't like that for you. So can you Correct. just talk about that a little bit? Sure. But before, I think Armin wanted to jump in with a question. And I, I can think blend we missed out an entire important thing right at the beginning because a lot of people are just – I think a lot of our audience don't know what we're talking about when we say Ahmadi Muslim. And we're, um, I think we, we should have had a – quick 101 on what this is all about before we even jumped into any of this yeah we'll, we'll uh, yeah let's do that next um i i think that uh, i mean we, we mentioned that there are a persecuted sect but we'll get into the theology of it no before, like, but... n n um i didn't that's not what i mean what yeah. i mean is like just to understand that a lot of people a lot most muslims don't consider you mo uh, consider this community to be even muslim Correct. Right. So I just wanted to yeah. touch on like it's not just a one, just like a Shia Sunni. Now this is another sect. This is one of those sects in Islam where the people um, in it are are like if one thing unites most Muslims is their hatred for these other small groups like Baha'is yeah. and Ahmadis. Uh, right. They consider it um, innovation. They consider it worse than atheists they consider them worse than jews worse than non-believers because they're not only it's, it's worse than not believing in islam they're changing islam 
Mm. Um, so just wanted to touch on that. But we go sure. into theology. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. I think yeah. maybe we'll just close the, the sort of personal right. story arc right. that yeah. you wanted to, uh, Ali, and then we'll be clear for the theology. Right. Mm. Um, so uh, for me, it wasn't an emotional thing actually at all. Uh, I came at it, um, you know, looking at the religion in my teens and finding, you know, when you read stuff from your own religious community, it's very curated. It looks really good. It sounds good. It's very compelling. You're a young teenager. You're very idealistic. And, you know, you associate your identity with the belief and you're like, wow, okay, we're pretty progressive compared to other Muslims. You know, hey, Jesus Christ didn't pull a Peter Pan off the cross. He actually got saved. It wasn't a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. And then he just migrated east because he was persecuted. Oh, this makes yeah. so much more sense. And I really love that Jesus in India narrative, which we'll get into in the theology part of, of this time. Um, so there was a lot of things like that that I really liked about the religion. And I think, you know, all too often when we're in circles that are critical of religion, we sometimes sidestep or don't, you know, um, place a bookmark um, often enough that there are things compelling about religion. Uh, the things that are not compelling, we tend to focus on, but the things that are compelling, we tend to um, forget to mention or we ignore, but that is part of the story. And so some of those things, um, you know, a more compelling theological narrative compared to sort of the rest of the of Islam, you know, as I saw it as a teen, I was like, hey, I want to help spread this. You know, you got that idealism. Hey, if everybody could be under this one banner, you know, like a, a zealous Christian youth might be like, hey, if I could bring everybody to Christ, you know, and you think one of those Coca-Cola commercials, uh, you know, give the world a hug or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know, so you, so you have that sort of zealotry. And so I, I was passionate about it. And then I thought to myself, you know what, in trying to do, like I would do Dawah in high school. I would take excerpts from Amity books. And I would, there wasn't websites at this point, so I'm typing them up. And then I'll print them out of my dot matrix printer and hand them out in the library to my friends to start discussing religion. Like I was that passionate about it. And I recognized that there was a few topics that Islam just gets pummeled over in the West, at least. Nobody seems to care about this stuff in the East, but it just, it just gets pummeled over. So I thought, you know what? I'm now, it's been a few years. Let me go study some of these difficult areas because I know that one of the skills I had was I was a decent communicator. So if I could understand this stuff, then I could sell it to anybody. You know, I, I could convince them. So I looked into the theology and it started troubling me. And that was the genesis of my questioning. It wasn't an emotional thing. It's not because I wanted to sin. I mean, to this day, I haven't even touched a drop of alcohol. You know, so there's a lot of values I take from Islam that have kind of informed me and some of the things that I've born, been born with that I'm just comfortable with and I've stayed with. Um, it was all about the theology. Yeah, like what? it's about it. what's true. What's true is more important to me than what's comfortable. But what, okay, so but, okay, no, yeah. I, I, so so you this this sect of Islam, a lot of people consider it to be a lot more peaceful, right? Uh, right. A lot more um, accepting, a lot more less violent, less aggressive. Uh, but that you, but why is that? So why would you not? Why was that not good enough for you? Like why a lot of people say like, who cares what the truth is? Um, as long as they're not, as long as there's a religion uh, ideology that is not harming people, um, you know. In fact, that might be a solution to 
the more violent, more aggressive branches of Islam? Why uh, why is this obsession over the truth? Yeah, so I think there's a few few things there. Let me try to touch on the first one. Even devout Ahmadi Muslims will say, no, 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 truth matters. I agree with you if it, you know, if it's not true, then you, you shouldn't believe it. Now, most of them will not concede that we can have different uh, different opinions and that I can sincerely hold this belief. Mm. You know, most of the social media attacks I'm getting is like, oh, well, you know, you should just be objective. And I'm like, okay, so if I don't agree with you, I'm not objective. Like, you know, but in isolation, these same people will say, yes, truth matters, you know, in theory. Um, for me... I think, um, yes, absolutely, um, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been stellar at um, promoting a nonviolent ethos. There's never been a terrorist attack with any Ahmadi, um, you know, at the helm, uh, sort of running it, because it's so, and I can explain why that is, but, um, you know, what a lot of people miss about Islam, and I think especially sort of right-wing who pick up on the ex-Muslim discourse, is that it's not about it's not all about terrorism. That's like such a small part of the narrative. And and yeah. I think, Armin, you've mentioned this in the past. Yeah, many you know, times, yeah. We how, both agree on this. How our lives are impacted. Mm. You know, terrorism is not even an issue for me growing up or questioning. It does, it's not even on the radar. So for people who think like that's the issue, it's not. Mm. You know, the way we live our lives, whether it's a woman being forced to wear hijab or um, the sort of limited arranged marriage choices, um, sort of the strict segregation, not being able to sort of, you know, just live authentically. A lot of little day-to-day -day things. It's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, yeah, and if you deviate from it, you get excommunicated. That's all the, and disowned. And that, that is the issue. That, that, what, I say, what, I say, yeah. what I say that is Islam fucks with your life in a lot more ways than terrorism. That's what I yeah. used to say, yeah. Mm -hmm. But but even even if all of those ways that Islam was not there to fuck with your life, but why is it that just the truth matters more than the consequences to you? You know what I mean? Just that principle. Why is that there? You know, I, I think I can actually credit um, my Islamic upbringing for emphasizing that. Like, when I was in a young kid in Sunday school, I'd hear stories about her, the early Muslims in the Meccan period, you know, they were tortured or, you know, um, persecuted and told to, like, give up their belief. But they would die. They'd suffer the torture because what was true should not be denied. And so, you know, I, I actually took that lesson from Islam and, and ran with it. And I think um, uh, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's a good lesson. It's important. And I think... Um, I mean, this is such a broader philosophical question. At one level, it seems obvious, mm. and at another level, it could be a five-hour conversation. Right. But really briefly, I think that when you have, uh, when you accept truth as a foundation, mm. uh, you layer truth upon truth. You're more, you're less likely to get misguided, to run into problems. It's kind of like, you know, why is lying wrong? Mm. You know, you need another lie to uh, catch it up, um, and then it feels bad inside, and it creates a mess. It just gets messy. Um, so I think we can live better lives by seeing things as they are. So um, what yeah. would you I, say? It's actually, can I would say you... one thing? Uh, just one thing. Like I have to point this out. What you said about how uh, Islam actually led you to the pursuit of truth. I had a very similar experience. So I, 
was my my cousin who who went to Qom to become a you know a, an alim and everything like that. So he was I was roommates with him for about two or three years, and we used to have these sort of theological discussions on Shiaism and Islam all the time. And he's like the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of logic, truth, truth. And I yeah. did that, and eventually I discovered Bertrand Russell, and mm. uh, you know. Uh, so in a way, Islam led me to atheism. It's it's really weird. So, so what but would you ahead. say to uh, people that say, look, people are not going to leave their Islam. And it seems like Ahmadi Islam is a better version of Islam. And by going against Ahmadi Islam, you, you might be giving up our only option um, to make these Muslims a, uh, a little bit more tolerant. Yeah, so again, that could be... Uh... A really big conversation and it can kind of lead into the typical you know reform right. versus apostasy stuff so i'll be but, really yeah. brief there but um interestingly some amity apologists um i you know come on twitter they're like you know we're such a peaceful community why do you have to keep uh, attacking us and things like that um and i'm just pointing out you know weird references from their books of you know bizarre theology uh, because that really points to like is this even true or not mm. and so even some of their own apologists take that perspective, not all of them, but some of them take that approach of like, you know, why don't you just focus on the Muslims who are violent and doing terrorist acts and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I look at it as, you know, uh, there are many problems in this world, but a lot of them uh, are solved by pursuing what's true. And I don't want to give, you know, there's so many other problems that Ahmadiyya Islam creates in people's lives. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to give them a free pass because, from criticism. Right. You know, and and I don't think, yes, there are some, you know, Orthodox Muslims who have converted to Amity Islam because they're like, it just sort of fits in with your sort of more innate humanity of being a little bit more compassionate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that's if that works for them, great. It's a yeah. step in the well, right well, direction. The, the biggest thing that I have heard for the why um, a lot of mainstream Muslims convert to uh, Ahmadiyya Islam is that they have an issue with the violent verses in the Quran and yeah. Ahmadiyya apologetics um has a sort of an institutionalized way to of dealing to, with it. of dealing with it and getting rid of it so it, it makes them feel because you know they have this whole like all why is all this violent stuff in here in the book and then Amadeus coming to okay this is how we explain it we've got all these sort of philosophical you know ideas about why Islam is nonviolent and they can really believe this religion of peace stuff and yeah. also keep the infallibility of scripture intact. So I think that is a very compelling well, thing for a lot of people. What I could, what I, what I could respond to, the, what I suggest people respond to them is the same way. If they want to compare themselves with other Muslims, then we could compare their them being persecuted in Pakistan and other places to what we're doing. We're like, why are you complaining about us just criticizing you when there's actual people that want to kill you, right? Like, right. Right, you right. are you're going after your critics where with which are doing nothing other than pointing out with the flaws in your logic where there are people out there that are actually trying to hunt you down and imprison you and you're you're upset with us with with our just just words right so yeah that could be a comeback i don't know so so in their defense i think what they would say is hmm. um by that criticism going to them it it makes it harder for people who are looking for a softer path to accept it. But I'm on the page with you, Armin, about the, uh, and I'm sure you, Ali, as well, that, you know what, if you just put the truth in front of people right. and let them decide and it's complete apostasy, great. 
you know, that's, that's just better. Um, let's, we don't need to take baby steps. If the people want to take baby steps, that's for them. But I want to put the information out there for people to, you know, take the leap if they're ready. Yeah, even if you want them to take baby steps, by the way, if you want to do that, yeah. the best way to get people to take baby steps is to put the truth out there. Because yeah. usually what happens is, uh, and you know, I've talked about this here before, nobody prospectively decided to do reform. I mean, these guys, the Enlightenment thinkers, like, you know, Voltaire and Rousseau and these guys, they just came out and they just said what they did. And they just said, we reject all of this. And then the people took that. And then they, uh, you know, they now had two different poles that they could be between, and most of them chose a an in between, watered down hippie form of Jesus and Christianity uh, that they accepted for. So, so this whole reform thing uh, was actually a result of um, people putting all of the truth out there and, and going full, you know, okay, I completely reject this, rather than starting off in the middle ground. So, so, so if you want them to take baby steps, go all the way. So how did you? Uh, yeah, actually, that's a very good point, Ellie. Uh, how did you? How did your uh, community and family react to the video? So I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks um, from the video, um, and I think because it's so long, it's you know people taking their time, kind of going through it. So I think we haven't gotten the full um, sort of reaction to the video per se. Mm -hmm. But um, and some people who follow me on Twitter will know, you know, uh, there's been a few tweets a few days ago where. Um, you know, there are people who I expected people to talk about it and share it. And in fact, I wanted that, you know, because it'd be people like, oh, my God, this guy left and it'd be shared around in their family groups. And that's fine. You know, that's uh, I, I wanted to start a, a dialogue and discourse. What I didn't expect, um, it's almost because I I expected more of people was people um, kind of, uh, you know, through intermediaries kind of. Uh, talking to my family and sort of expressing like, well, he left, he should just leave. Why does he have to talk about it? And, you know, that, that kind of a sentiment. Um, and it's so ironic because I think most Amadi Muslims, the community, most people actually don't know that much about their theology. Well, um, most, most, most religious people in general, right? Yeah. So, so they, there's a lot of, you know, um, progressive sort of PR that goes on and everybody sort of drinks that Kool-Aid, but they don't recognize that, you know, uh, just over a hundred years ago, the founder of the movement, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, you know, he had a lot of sort of really biting critique of Christianity and he would dig in. And, and so one of the things I still got to do is have a dialogue with, with family and extended family and, and sort of show this. And I didn't really include that in my video. It was like, it would be three hours long. And those are things I want to do as a follow-up. But a lot of them don't recognize that the way I'm critiquing is actually gentler than the way their own, quote-unquote, promised Messiah had critiqued other religions. And the thing is, I don't blame him for that. He has every right to have done that. But for a missionary community that goes on the offense, mm. theologically, to then have most of its people say, wait a minute, whoa, you can't do that. Why are you talking about this? You know, how disrespectful and so forth. You're following the example of the leader. Yeah. And, and I think this reminds me of um, even what you would say often, uh, Ali, which is so beautiful about how, you know, Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad in 7th yes. century Arabia, he is the original blasphemer. It, you know, to blaspheme is sunnah. <laughs> and even yeah. for me, you know, I'm one of those people who says everybody has a right to blaspheme. Absolutely. But I'm one of those people that just because I have a right, 
I won't often do it. It will be very calculated. There'll be context. It'll serve a purpose. Now, there'll be other people who say, look, it doesn't have to serve a purpose. I just want to blaspheme. They have that right. I will never take them, that away from them. My own style is, you know, it's got to have a purpose and it's got to be kind of measured to what you're doing. And I know people will disagree with me, but that's how I've been approaching things. And for a lot of amethysts who are complaining, and I think, frankly, a lot of people who haven't even seen my video or even 20 minutes of it, you know, just shocked that somebody's speaking up because they're so used to having a privileged position. And that reminds me of that saying somebody has about when you're so used to having privilege, equality feels like oppression. Right. Yeah, and it's it's also about it doesn't. It's also about how broad your definition of blasphemy is, because I know you're saying that your approach is not to blaspheme, and of course, it's we're none of us are at the level of the bla of blasphemy that the Prophet Muhammad was. So yeah. Muhammad actually he went out and he destroyed the gods of the Quraysh. He was chased yeah. out of Mecca, you know, all of that. He he was a he was like a god compared to us when it comes yeah. to blasphemy. Uh, we're just kind of like drawing cartoons and doing podcasts and writing books. But and what, what 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 I was saying was that your entire video to a lot of people is blasphemy. Yeah. So even though you say that you use a different approach, I mean, it was Daniel Dennett who said that there is no polite and kind way to point out to somebody that their entire life has been an illusion. And if you simply, like Malala Yousafzai got shot in the head just because she said girls should go to school, and that was considered blasphemous to some people. So, that, you know, when it comes, when you're dealing with uh, faith and irrationality, um, the bar for what is blasphemy or not just it just oscillates it at, at, at yeah. a scale that you know and at the level of my video I completely stand by it I don't think you know if other people think that's blasphemy at that level then I think they're just um, being really sensitive and they don't know their own history of Muhammad of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed either by the way I have so don't. many questions that's on like... my desk straight we're not going to even cover 25 Armin percent. you got to jump in you got to be more aggressive right just well, do it. Okay. well then, no, I can't because I the, I see so many comments telling me that I'm interrupting you, and then when I don't, you tell me that I need to interrupt I'm, I'm you. I'm giving hey, listen, listen. No, I, actually, about, I think this is been going at a good pace, right. and then no. when we switch over to Armin's questions, no, 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 uh, I, I think it'll work. No, no, by the way, no, to no, all no, the people that tell me that I interrupt Ali so much, Ali wants me to interrupt him, or else if he wouldn't like, <laughs> uh, wouldn't get a I I right. am fine with you interrupting me, right, and right. I will fight back, and I will try to find space to crowd questions with the guests. Like I am doing right now, but uh, all I want oh, just don't interrupt you, okay. the guest. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right. So, uh, with regards to here's the thing, the Baha'i. Can, can I get to the theology now a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Is that a good? Or, okay. So, because a lot of people find this confusing, because Baha'i. I'm not going to interrupt you again. No more interruptions. Shut up. <laughs> Should I actually give a 30-second <laughs> overview to just kind of frame what No, 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 but Armin, finish your question. Let's have Armin okay. finish. I was just messing with him. Let's no, no, no. Let, let's get the 30-second uh, reference because I want to hear before I ask the question. Go on. Okay. So the Ahmadiyya sect was founded in 1889 <laughs> by a person named Mirza Ghulam Ahmed in the right. Indian subcontinent. And um, he basically said uh, after uh, a few years that Jesus had died, a natural death, which most Muslims thought, you know, Jesus is still alive and he's returning. And so this this person said, look, the, the Jesus that's supposed to return, all those prophecies are very symbolic. I'm that person in terms of a sort of a metaphorical second coming. Um, and he founded a community, and then there was uh, caliphs who followed. And, and right now the Amity community has the fifth uh, caliph of their what they refer to as the promised Messiah, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And um, 
he's based in London right now. And so, um, you know, estimates put this community at somewhere between 10 and 20 million, although there was a huge scandal about them uh, in the early 2000s claiming 200 million adherents, and that's a whole other topic, which we should touch on later. But um, uh, so uh, he basically recognized that Islam in the Indian subcontinent was coming under attack from a lot of Christianity. So he tried to explain Islamic apologetics in a way that was more palatable. And I think he was successful and it was a lot more sophisticated. He's not the first one to do it, but he's one of the first, I think, that packaged it up very neatly. Right. He's not actually another. This is where I was going to get it. Everything you say about Ahmadis seems so much like the Baha'is, right? The main difference between, like, I think that. Well, there's, big, there's way bigger differences. I know. Well, I didn't even say the differences, but I'm just saying there's a lot of similarities, right? I'm not saying they're this. Obviously, they're very, very different, but there's so many similarities. It's kind of, to me, it seems, I don't know why my microphone auto-adjusts itself. Somebody have to teach me how to stop that. Uh, but it's, to me, Ahmadis are like the Baha'is of the Indian subcontinent, right? Uh, the, the main difference, the main difference is that the Baha'is don't consider themselves Muslim and the Ahmadis do, right? right. But the, both of them consider the Quran to be legitimate, right? And from God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, b- both of them, their founders, so, so the Ahmadis was Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and the Baha'is was Mirza Hussein Ali. It doesn't help that they have both Mirza in there. Confuses. Uh, the... Ahmadis came out of Sunni Sufi mix, right? Yeah. The Baha'is came out of Shia Sufi mix, right? The main problem that the Muslim community has against both of them is both both of them were foreign backed, right? Baha'is mostly by uh, Ahmadis mostly by uh, the Great Britain. Well, that's that's a sort of a, a slander. I wouldn't take that as a given. I mean, they were sympathetic, and we can get into that. But to say that Amadis were funded by the British, I think that's really fun- simplistic. But well, I mean, we are doing a simplistic summary right now. I'm just saying well, they well, were. They were those, yeah, they were sympathetic to the values the British government brought in of secularism. No, they were. The British government was using many different sects to, you know, I mean, uh, the, in, in, my in study, Iran, that, that's never. Hmm? But in, in India, with hmm. the Amadis, I've never seen any of that substantiated. Okay. I mean, it, it's not very, it's very British like to do this, by the way. So I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen some it, it, other, it be, uh, but I, but I, I can't, I right. can't vouch okay, for okay. that being the narrative. Bo- both of, of them happened. started in the late 1800s, right? Baha'is yes. and Shia, uh, Baha'is right. and Ahmadis, right? Right. Um, and both of them are heavily, um, you know, oppressed and persecuted. Yeah. Baha'i is mostly in Iran, Ahmed is mostly in Pakistan. Correct. Right? So, th- th- I mean, uh, very, very similar. Oh, um, but again, Baha'is don't act. What, what is it about the um, seal of the prophet, right? Do you, do, do Ahmadis think Muhammad was the last prophet? So, it's a bit of a nuance there, and give me 30 seconds on this one. Okay. Um, Amadis say that Muhammad was the last law-bearing prophet. So they have the same kalma as other Muslims. They have the same five pillars as other Sunnis, six articles of faith, same Quran. Um, they believe there's no abrogation. Um, so they're actually closer to Sunni Islam mm. than Shias are to Sunni Islam. 
So that's why when people sort of look at them as like fringe, like Baha'i, in some ways it doesn't do justice to how similar they are. Are you sure? Because yes, the most, I mean, when you say, I mean, here, as a, I put my Sunni hat on and I will yeah. say like, no, actually Shias are closer to it. As a Sunni, I might say, no, that's not right. Shias are actually a little bit closer to us because the most important, one of the most important things in Islam is the fact that Muhammad was the last prophet. So, okay. So let me, and let me Shias that. at least yeah. accept that and you guys okay, don't. So in the sense that I was talking is if you spend a day, just a fly on the wall, looking at an Amadi live their life, or let's say over the course of a week, how they pray, how they fast, the duas they give, or whatever, mm. they're going to be almost indistinguishable from a Sunni family when you're a fly on the wall looking at them right. than a Shia family if you're a fly on the wall observing them for a week. Right. So in the day-to-day -day experience, it's going to look almost indistinguishable. Right. Um, as far as the theology is concerned, uh, Amadis will say, look, we're not changing anything. We're saying... Uh, and I'm putting my Amity hat on, that Muhammad was the last law-bearing prophet, but, and Amity's will say that, but prophethood is allowed to continue because, and they'll say, hey, you Sunnis and you Shias, you actually believe this and you don't even realize because when you believe Jesus is going to come back, it's not like God's going to strip him of his prophethood. He is technically coming chronologically after, even though he also came chronologically before. And then this is where you just get into semantic no, hairspray. No, I'm going to put my Sunni hat on. As well, again, no, but he he is still the same prophet. Jesus is the same prophet as before. It's not a new fucking prophet. What? It's what? not. It's not about new. Right. It's about chronology. And if he's coming who? after, according to who? According to Ahmadis, and uh, no, there's no, there's no, there's nowhere well, that is. If you're looking at Khatam or Khatam, hmm. you know whichever Kirati you want to use, even last. It's about chronology. So when it's Jesus not, comes say, back... And so, Muhammad is the last newest prophet. Doesn't say, it's just last. Okay, and, you know, but you, when, that literally. you don't know when Sunnis and um, Shias say Jesus is going to come back, maybe he's not going to come back as... Like, he's not going to have any revelations while he's here. So maybe he's not... It doesn't matter. He's still, a, he's still prophet Jesus. In the Quran, it refers to him as a prophet. If the Quran is there uh, until doomsday... Then prophethood uh, can't be Sunnis stripped have, away from him. I think Sunnis and Shias have a stronger argument here. This is Khatamatun Nabi. It doesn't say Khatamatun Nabi with a book. It's, uh, yeah. but it is. <clears throat> so wait, uh, the, the, the Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was, was the, uh, also claimed to be the metaphorical reincarnation of Jesus, right? Yes. He did so. Both of them, I, actually, I actually, both, both. This is another he similarity. He to be Mahdi and Messiah, and, and, the he, would, and Messiah. he would use uh, um, something from the Sunnah. I think it's in Ibn Majah. There's a saying, "La Mahdi la Isa." Basically, there's no Mahdi but Isa. So, so they'll so, refer to that saying. So, it's two and one. By the way, sorry, sorry. One, one thing for PR purposes, because I'm, I'm trying to get into this discussion that you guys are having. For PR purposes, um, did. He not at least uh, try to make the claim that hey, I'm not saying I'm the last prophet. I'm just the reincarnation okay. of a previous prophet. prophet. So, so there's a little bit Both of confusion of because in the early part of his ministry, when he was more of like you know a wise, saintly figure that a lot of people revered as like hey, he's a great defender of Islam and so forth. Um, he would even say that if anybody claimed to be a prophet, they're out of the fold of Islam. I'm not a prophet. And what would happen is over time he sort of was less vocal about denouncing sort of another prophet coming. And then eventually, he 
he said, yeah, I am a prophet. And he wrote a book called The Will, and he spells that out. Now, the really important thing there is the apologetics, the main branch of Amadea uses, because there's actually a split in the community, but there's pretty much one main branch and everything else is really tiny. Um, they would say, look, he was so humble that he said, I'm not a prophet. He, I mean, he grew up in an environment of those typical Islamic apologetics and understandings that said there's no more prophets. So that's why he rejected it. But that over time, God gave him dreams and revelations. And so he slowly realized that God was saying, no, you are a prophet. So that's why this gets a little bit of confusion in his writings. I mean, that's how the apologetic goes. And there is a chronology that will can be used to, to make that argument. So if I ask a random Ahmadi, do you think Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was Jesus himself? Would they say yes? No, they'd say define himself. He was a, they'll just say he was a metaphorical second coming. Not, of Jesus. Not, of Jesus, yeah. Mm. Uh, this is another similarity between Baha'is and Ahmad because ba the so the founder of Baha'i faith, Mizar Hussein Ali, was also supposed to be uh, Jesus. Right. They they leverage the same sort of end time messianic prophecies and return and things like that. Right. That's really interesting. So I actually didn't know about this. I mean, I'm sure that there are many significant differences between the two, but yeah. um, these commonalities are maybe it seems like they just came in different areas. One was in Persia and the other in the Sudan. Yeah, but the biggest thing is the Baha'is don't self-identify as Muslims. They distance themselves, That's, right? Well, that is Ahmadis are saying, look, we are the true Islam. And, and, and I guess the other point there is that Muslim, though. Yeah, Baha'is don't call themselves Muslim, but if you believe in the Quran as a, a, a Quran and Muhammad and all that, technically you're Muslim. Well, I guess depending on which definition, sure. Right. Uh, Amadis will say, though, that what had happened was that the Islam that they represent is the original Islam of Muhammad, but that over time it had gotten corrupted. A lot of self-serving sheikhs and leaders had sort of destroyed the face of Islam, introduced all kinds of novelties that were never there, and that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed came to actually correct and revive, not reform or sugarcoat, but from their perspective, bring back what was originally Islam and had gotten That's lost. That's what every reformer says. Right? No, no. So, so they don't see themselves as reformers. They right. see themselves, at right. most, as revivers of what was already there. Right, so this, yeah, is, the difference. this is the difference between modern reformists and historical Reformists and most throughout history, the so-called reformists of Islam, uh, which by the way, reforming Islam has been tried many, many times, right? Uh, yeah. But the the main difference is that they didn't. None of the reformists throughout history considered themselves reformists. Outsiders considered themselves considered them reformists. They considered themselves revival. They saw like, no, this is what Muhammad Going intended. To, yeah. The modern reform movement in uh, in the Islam is people that are actually calling themselves reformists, which makes their um, method even less practical than traditional reformists, is because Muslims are like, yeah, Islam doesn't need reform. Like, if you even want right. to try to reform Islam, you have to act like you're not reforming Islam, you're just exactly. trying to bring it back to what it was. Right? You, you have to create this sort of theological and historical plausible backstory all the way back to Muhammad, to sort of justify right. the way you do. You cannot be like, this needs changing, because then Muslims are like, wait, God's words needs changing? Like, no. <laughs> like, yeah. you have to come That's why, you know, as much as I love the Muslim Reform Movement's declaration, because right. it's very clear, you know, um, and a lot of people want to just sort of say, yeah, I, I believe in those values. Mm -hmm. But without the sort of theological back work to mm -hmm. take it all the way back to the 7th century, right. it's difficult for people to sort of bite. Right.
By the way, another difference between Baha'is and uh, Ahmadis is that Ahmadis have hijab, right? Yeah, I mean, Ahmadis Baha'is are encouraged to have hijab. Yeah. Baha'is, Baha'is actually, they have a ruling against the hijab, which is weird, right? But, uh, but going back to what Ali was saying is that uh, why, like, these the similarities like, very, is very interesting, but the thing is that we know about Ahmadis and Baha'is a lot because they are, you know, you know, they're on the news, they're persecuted, and it's very interesting. But throughout history, uh, this was a common tactic. Hey, I'm the Mahdi. Hey, I'm I'm the second coming of Jesus. Like this was this was these ideas were used over and over again many many times. But these are the most right. famous. Well, ones. yeah, I mean, 1979, the siege of the uh, Mecca Mosque was done by a guy who claimed to be the Mahdi. Right. Uh, this Khomeini himself claimed to be the Mahdi. Um, Ismaili, been... the founder of this, uh, well, the Ismailis, and even that boss I touched on that. Uh, even I, the, when I did my psychiatry rotations and I was used to work in the psychiatric uh, hospitals, um, there were in, in Pakistan and Karachi, there were at least two or three Imam Mehdi's and, and all. I, I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. I am serious. Uh, there were several because delusions of grandeur and, you know, people who are manic and, you know, a bipolar <laughs> disorder or. Um, it, it, so a lot of these people, they tend to have these uh, delusions, and so, that's a very common delusion there. So, so the founder of the Safavid Empire did that as well. But the interesting thing about Mirza Ghulam, so it's either you're the second coming of Jesus or you're the Mahdi. But what's interesting about Mirza Ghulam Ahmad is, is that he used both. <laughs> like, I'm both of those things. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah and, he, and he used a, a hadith and, yeah. you know, sort of to try to reconcile the two. And he said, look, God doesn't need to send two people. And so he could kind of rationalize it and make... Uh, and make a case for it that was that, you know, for a lot so of people successful. compelling. Yeah, because yeah. he's probably one of the more successful. And Amma the Apologist would say, look, you know, he wasn't killed. He wasn't beheaded like, you know, Joseph Smith was killed. Uh, so they'll look at that and say, look, you know, God didn't God, God didn't curse him. Mm. He has a successful movement. It's all over the world. I mean, mostly it's um, it's emigration, you know, for why Amadis are in so many countries. Um, and you'll see them very shy away now from saying how many countries, sorry, how many people. They won't say we're so many million strong. They'll say we're in 212 or whatever countries. Right, um, right. But most of those are just immigrants from Pakistan who got persecuted. So there are two sects within uh, the uh, subsects mm. uh, within the Ahmadiyya faith. So this is yeah. kind of interesting because we've had this throughout. We've got the Shia and Sunni that kind of broke up because they had a, an issue with successorship. Uh, there was the within the Shias, the Shias, you know, you've had the. Um, the Ethnoshri Shias, the Twelvers, and the Sixers, the Ismailis, and Ismailis have also split later on into the Nizaris and the Boras and everything. So in the same way, in the Ahmadiyya community, uh, you have had a split based on uh, leadership. So you have the Lahore group, um, and you have the, I, I don't know what the other one's called. The main branch is called the, the Gadian branch. Usually we don't use the, you know... Like, Gaudiani is, is kind of a, is a pejorative, but when you have to distinguish it from the Lahore branch, then it's not like the Gaudian branch versus the Lahore branch. The Lahore, the by the way, for those people laughing at the word, um, it's a city in Pakistan. I know there's going to be loads of people, and I, I'm used to this because I was born in that city. That's the city I was born in. But anyway, so, so did, can you explain that difference? Yeah, okay. So really briefly, what had happened is when Mirza Ghulam Ahmed had died, there was a Khalifa... Um, uh, chosen after him, who ruled for, I mean, he oversaw the community for six years, uh, and everybody was unified under him, um, and then when it was time for the next Khalifa, basically, uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's son, who was only 24, 25 at the time, 
um, was nominated, and he was very powerful. And the thing is, you know, for it's in human nature, and I think especially in areas where there's like sort of less educated people, there's that tribal mentality of like you're the son of the founder, you should be next. Plus, there's prophecies made about you know this promised son, and so he was sort of in a pitched battle, um, both in terms of views and um, theology, but also leadership, where. Um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed had also set up something called the Unjaman, which was basically sort of like a committee of mm -hmm. really scholarly people. Um, and those people were around, and it was kind of like a, you know, Congress and the president. It was sort of like the the uh, Unjaman and the Khalifa. And the Khalifa still had more power, um, but it was sort of like, you know, a contemplative body. Um, you know, if they're on the same page, it works. So, but what had happened is a lot of people in that committee and that consultative body, they didn't like Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's son. And they thought he was too young, not ready, and they disagreed on views. A lot of them was still not clear on was Mirza Ghulam Ahmed a prophet or not. So the Lahori said, no, he wasn't. It was just a metaphorical terminology, but it's not real prophethood. And you get into all this theological hair splitting. Hmm. And the main branch, the promised son, uh, Mirza Bashir bin Mahmud Ahmed, son of Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, he said, no, 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 he's actually a prophet. He just doesn't have a new law. And um, so there'd be a lot of sort of pitch battles there. And then ultimately the community split. And most people went with the founder's son because, it, you know, it just has that sort of, you know, monarchy, royal, you know, it just, it's just a popular fast move. Yeah, it, that's always going to win. It's almost a very Shia thing to do. Yeah. Um, so but the thing is, when you look at some of the early writings of the Ahmadiyya movement and their periodicals and scholarly books and essays, most of the most intellectual stuff they read, which I think is really impressive, was actually written by people in the Lahore branch. There was a really a lot of really smart people there. And and that intellectual legacy got lost. So I have, I have a question. Is it true that um, Ahmadis believe in, in Krishna and Buddha? Yeah, so um, Ahmadis will basically say a lot of religions beyond what was mentioned in the Quran are from God. But they seem so unrecognizable because they were changed at the hands of man. So Krishna was really a prophet. Buddha was a prophet. They'll even say that Socrates was a prophet. And it's just, just these people are just not mentioned in the Quran, but there are sort of, you know, religious legacy. Right. And Baha'i say so, the same thing as well. But this is something that I think Sunnis and Shias won't say. They think that uh, they think that Krishna and Buddha were either made up or demons or something right. like satanic, right? Yeah. So it, okay. it's a better it's a better proselytizing sort of approach to say, hey, you know, you're, you guys were just corrupted, but you're you got some original ideas from people who were really sent by God. Let us show you the real thing. You right. know, it's a bit more of an open opener than hey, that whole thing is BS. So an, another another similarity again between Baha'is and um, Ahmadis, and this is something that actually gets their you know advocating their religion a lot harder is that their strong presence and good relationship with Israel. Mm. Is that, is that in, especially in Haifa, in the city of Haifa in Israel? Yeah, and, and so that's a mixed story. Uh, and, and one bookmark I'll just place here right now is I know you're doing a lot of comparisons between Baha'is and Amethys, and I think that doesn't necessarily tell the story of why Amethys are relevant today. Right. Um, I, I think that similarity... Well, the, reason, is the reason why for me... Is for me okay? So I grew up in Iraq, in Iraq, right? Right. Yeah, I, I can see it. To, making, to me, Baha'is uh, were um, the main like weird sect came. It was out your of, version of Ahmadiyya, in a sense. Yeah, it was my version of right. Ahmadiyya, and then when I learned more about Ahmadiyya, like 
Oh, what? This is? Are you sure you're not talking about the highs? And the more I learn about Ahmed, is like, like it, it, I had that was my point of reference. And there are some. You have to admit there are a lot of similarities here. Sure. And I know as somebody that grew up as an Ahmadi, you you know more of the differences than you know the, the similarities. Doesn't seem that big of a deal. But from an outsider, the similarities are just amazing. I don't know, yeah. but. But go on. But why? Why? Because, why do... because Amadis self-identify as Muslims and right. are very much in the West in the discourse of what Islam is. Right. I think that becomes a more important uh, sort of angle to explore. But um, you were asking about Israel. Israel. So um, before Israel came into being, um, Amadis were very much against it. They're like, "No, we don't want this. Mm. We don't think it's right. Don't displace the Palestinians." And um, the first foreign minister of Pakistan was an Ahmadi, Mirza, uh, sorry, Jodhri Zafullah Khan. And um, he gave some like long, like I don't know if it was like 24 hour or some crazy long speech at the UN um, and trying to basically push for why Israel should not be created as a country. And the Saudi king, I think at that time, you know, there wasn't as much persecution at that time. Um, and he had basically given him a medal or some kind of designation or some sort of honorary thank you because Amadis were, you know, Chaudhry Zafullah Khan was doing such an amazing job of pushing that, you know, which most Muslims were, were grateful for and thankful for. Now, um, you can simultaneously um, push for, hey, we don't think it's fair to create this state, but at the same time say, look, now that it's created, we don't believe in, you know, violence to sort of rectify that original wrong. We have to make peace and get along. So then now you will have Ahmadi missionaries in uh, Haifa in Israel, and they're on good terms with, um, you know, they're on good terms with local leaders around the world, because being antagonistic doesn't really serve you and your message of, of preaching. But it hurts their, it hurts their image with other Muslims, they're, sure. if, right, if they're close yeah. to Israel, right? And But when they, when they do try to convert people to... Well, I, I wouldn't even say close to Israel, they're just have amicable relations with everybody, including right. Israel. Including Israel. Um, do you think that um, when they try to convert people, is their main target Sunni Muslims, or do they go for everybody equally? It depends on the geography. Hmm. Um, so in uh, Pakistan, it's sort of like all Muslims. Sunnis are usually a little bit, again, closer, right? Because hmm. they'll be like, hey, yeah, the first four, Khulafa, Rashidin, you know, um, they accept that. Whereas with the Shia, it's right. harder to sell them on that because then you got to go litigate the whole Ali succession thing. Right. So Shias are going to have a little barrier to converting to Ahmadi Islam than Sunnis will. Oh, so for Ahmadis, it's easier to convert Sunnis than Shias. Right, because, right. because so much of the original narrative is, is on the is same page. There. But even I think even when in Israel, when they're converting, I think they stay away from trying to convert like Jews or Christians. I don't it. think they stay away from it. They just won't maybe necessarily put a lot of effort. Effort in it. They just okay. Yeah. The main focus is Sunni Muslims. But in the Indian subcontinent at the time, Mirza Ghulam was in a lot of debates and writing books. Right. He was very much trying to go after Christians as well. To some degree, it was right. to defend Islam against attacks from Christianity, mm. so that Muslims wouldn't leave Islam for Christianity, where there was a lot of movement in that direction. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of shit that Ahmadi Muslims have to deal with? You know, coming from other Muslims, like the passport situation. Is that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's still an issue. Uh, one thing I'll just add to the last point is in the West, um, 
I think Ahmadis are generally targeting, you know, a bit of everybody. They're, they'll target other Muslims who feel kind of lost, like, hey, I'm kind of open-minded and I'm more of a pacifist and mainstream Islam doesn't seem to really support that narrative. So Ahmadis will try to go after, you know, that audience as well. Actually, this is, so when it, when it, when it comes to the rise of ISIS and um, Al-Qaeda and all of that, I think a lot of people ha- have, are trying to like a lot of people are losing you know the the emotional you know attachment they had to Islam because of that and everybody is trying to like take from that as much as possible right like i right. think the christians yeah. are trying to take from the muslim community the atheists are trying to take from that and i think ahmadi muslims have been trying as much to be like hey do you you're tired you think as uh, you're tired of sunni islam there's another option like that's they have also like with all of the rise of att- mainstream media attention that these attacks have been getting ahmadis and and the interesting thing is that they have what i've seen in their marketing is that they they the constant use of the the word Khalifa, right? Mm. Because they're like, look, ISIS is trying to bring Islamic Khalifa and everybody thinks Islamic Khalifa now is like something extremely barbaric. But did you know that we already have a Khalifa? And not only does he not kill people, like he does this, he does this good thing. Like, so is that that a common marketing tactic? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a Vice News article and it was something titled uh, something sort of playful like the chill, the world's chillest Khalifa or something. Right, right. You know, because right. they kind of just spent a date with him and, and see how he lived his life. And obviously there's a huge difference. Right. Um, you know, it's it's a very pacifist um, community versus, you know, but ISIS. But they don't, when they, when, it, when they give to charity, I heard they only give to their own fellow, like they don't give to non-Ahmadis, do they? No, 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 that's, uh, that's a misnomer. And the thing is, there's so much, you know that that sort of uh, negative uh, propaganda tactic known as FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. There's a lot of FUD that the rest of the Muslim world has mm. put onto Amity so that even mainstream people who are not even Muslim, they can pick up on it and think, oh, like it's what? true. Uh, so, for example, people will say, oh, Amity's have a different uh, kalma than other Muslims, or they have a different Quran, or they pray differently, mm. or they have a different, you know, they don't... Have believe in the five pillars. All of that. Yeah, actually, they've done that. Sunnis have done that with Shias as well in Pakistan. Like I think a yes. significant number of Sunnis, and I, I would actually make up the kalma. I'd kind of egg them on. Yeah. You know, they'd be like, "Oh, I heard Shias have a different kalma." I'm like, "Yeah, ours is La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, Ali and Waliullah, wa Khomeini wa Ayatollah." And they that's and good. they would believe. It. They're like, "Really? Yeah. Really?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, that's it." That's our <laughs> and, and one level is a joke, but at another level, when it's yeah. so pervasive. People, you know, sort of believe that. So, um, so, uh, and I, I forgot the point you were you were asking, or you wanted me to comment on, Armin. The, uh, the, the, the shit that Ahmadi Muslims have to deal with, like the passport situation. Right. Okay. The, can they even go to Hajj, for example? They can't. Technically, if they declare that they're Ahmadi, they're blocked from Hajj. So Ahmadis do go to Hajj, but what ends up, they don't declare. They just put Muslim, and they don't. And the thing is, if somebody asks them point blank, then you know they're they're prepared to basically turn around at the airport and fly back. Wait, so um, what if they're next to the Kaaba, next to the House of God, and they tell people that they're Ahmadi Muslims? What's going to happen? It's going to be... A- well, I mean, you know, some people are maybe just sort of too busy in their own worship and they're not going to care. Um, but, what? you know, the wrong people who pick up on that, um, that can be really problematic. I haven't heard of anything like that happen because most people who go there are very careful. Hmm. Um, but generally in the Muslim, you know, in the Islamic world, uh, you know, in the Middle East, 
those countries, you don't advertise that you're Amity. No. You don't. Because you can go, to, I mean, she has a Sunday. You, you don't have prayer halls. You know, people secretly meet in homes and do their Jummah prayers together. You, you can't construct a mosque and put right. a sign on it so, and say so, this is an empty mosque. So just to make it clear how bad the situation is, like, even though Sunnis and Shias, like, very much disagree with each other and many times hate each other, you could yeah. still go to Kaaba, you could still go to Mecca and right. declare that you're a Shia, and you could still go to Saudi Arabia and do your Hajj, right? I know yeah. recently Iran has boycotted that, but that's beside the point. You could still do that. You could still, as a Shia, you could do that. But as an Ahmadi, if you declare that you're an Ahmadi, you can't go do the Hajj. Wow. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and the passport stuff you're talking about, for people who don't know, yeah. in Pakistan, um, declaring Ahmadis as non-Muslims is like built into their constitution <laughs> through an amendment <laughs> uh, because they're just so hung up on these. Yeah, that's actually things. true. That's not yeah. even a joke. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, <laughs> this is how so to get a passport, you basically have to uh, sign a declaration that basically states that you believe that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, is a non-Muslim. I think you have to say yeah, it's a cop. I, I have the exact wording here, but, so I can read it for you. But, but, but also, before before Ali reads it, let me just tell you, like, imagine you you have a country, you have a constitution, like, oh, we're starting this country, these are our value. By the way, on the side notes, fuck those group of people specifically. <laughs> that's and you exactly put, what it is. You put that in your constitution, and you yeah. make sure you, like, this is how much they hate these people. Like, you put that in the constitution. It's amazing. No. Go, go on, yeah, and, and just to show the reality, I mean, th this is really stunning. So I just want to get the audience, I want the audience to get a really good understanding of this. I have in front of me um, a Pakistani passport application form. And this is for everyone who wants to apply for a Pakistani passport, all Pakistani citizens. And here's what they have to sign. There's a section that says declaration in case of Muslims. Uh, I, so-and-so, son of blah, blah, blah. I hereby solemnly declare that, one, I am a Muslim and believe in the absolute and unqualified finality of prophethood. Fine. Number two, I do not recognize any person who claims to be a prophet in any sense of the word or of any description whatsoever after Muhammad, peace be upon him, and so on. Fine. Number three. I consider Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Ghadiani <laughs> to be an imposter <laughs> prophet and also consider his followers, whether belonging to the Lahori oh, or Ghadiani group, to be non-Muslim. That's and a passport have, application. Now, <laughs> now, in a passport, in a Pakistani passport, your religion is listed in the passport, right? Yeah. And if you, if you don't sign this, if you don't sign this, they will not declare you a Muslim. Pakistan. So what happens is I am assuming Sahel. Yeah, I am assuming Sahel that uh, uh, some MEDs just who want to be able to travel and do the Hajj and everything like that, they just sign this declaration. <laughs> They're like, okay, screw it, I'll just sign it, and then they they go. Or you know, from Pakistan, I don't know, but I know from other parts of the world, MEDs uh, do go for Hajj, hmm. um, and they, you know, there's like little travel groups, and you're in a you know group from Canada will go, and and nobody really asks, so it's kind of like don't ask, don't tell. Um, but how people from Pakistan do this, I don't know. Maybe if they're lucky enough to have like dual citizenship somewhere, they use that other passport or, you know, um, no, but either, either they have to sign this and say, I am not a Muslim. Yeah. Right. Um, or, uh, they, ha or no, either they have to sign this and say, okay, I deny everything I believe, or they have to, uh, they refuse to sign it and they don't get the Islamic status, yeah. which means they can never go on Hajj or, or anything yeah. like that. I my I don't have the actual figures on this, uh, but my gut is that most of them will 
um, not sign that, their passport will say Amity, and they forsake the opportunity to go to Hudge because they're not going to sign something. Uh, they're not really? going to declare something truthful. Can they just yeah. is, so they don't have Taqiyya? <laughs> Taqiyya. Yeah. yeah. And, and for everybody else, I never heard of that word until uh, like probably like two years it's, ago. It's a Shia thing. Man. Well, Shia. actually, okay, so here's the thing. I didn't hear that word much um, before, until I left Islam either, but Technically, it's not as bad as people make it sound to be. Like I, there's a, yeah. there are a lot of more problematic teachings in Islam. It's basically telling you, like, hey, if you're about to die, if somebody's going to kill you for your faith, lie about your faith. Like that's not really right. because yeah, human I, life is more precious than in the moment. Uh, you know, right? That's uh, not a really bad yeah, teaching. And, and, and as far as that goes, I think it's absolutely on point. So. Right. Yeah. So, but but um, but there's also white lies. Another version of Taqiyya that also kind of makes sense. But like, basically, it's telling another. So there's two, there's the fear Taqiyya, and the, there's another non. I forgot what it's called. Another version of Taqiyya. The fear Taqiyya is like um, if somebody's going to kill you, lie about your faith. But also another Taqiyya is that if if you uh, if you telling your faith to somebody could, could cause hostility. Then just don't lie to them, but just don't tell them, like by like by omission, right? So so for clarity in Amity Islam, we've never really gone into this stuff. No. It's just sort of like you know, if you need so to preserve would it life, would it be considered would it be considered a sin if you sign that application passport application? You're like, hey, I just need a fucking passport. I don't mean it. I'm just gonna. Well, I think you still can get a passport. It's just gonna list your if you, if you don't sign that, it, you're then just you not end gonna up. be listed as a Muslim. That's it. So yeah. you still get a passport. You can still travel. Like, Wait, there's a lot of so what's the point of having that? So why what's the point of having that in the declare in the passport application? Because then you don't get to say that you're a Muslim on your passport. You're going to be listed as a non-Muslim. So they're the forcing they're what's forcing the, Ahmadi Muslims to declare to that say that, that we're that not Muslims. Muslim. And what's the consequence? Right. Like, what's life like in for so it, it's nowhere. At, so the worst place to be an Ahmadi is Pakistan, right? Just listen. Right. Just like the worst place to be. Yeah, I'm not going to compare anymore because it seems like you don't like that. But. Um, but what's the what are some shit that people Ahmadis have to deal with in in Pakistan? So um, you know, there's 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 sort of two levels. There's the what's in the law, and it's definitely the discrimination is in the law. Hmm. And then there's also sort of the the factor of mob rule, you know, sort of mob justice. So you fear sort of both levels. At a practical level, um, the in the constitution, you're a non-Muslim. If you say Assalamu alaikum, you call your place of worship a mosque. Um, you uh, hurt the religious feelings of Muslims by posing, you know, or sort of uh, uh, projecting that you are a Muslim. You know, this is some gray areas there too. Then you can get um, a pretty oh. hefty fine and up to three years in jail for saying "Assalamu alaikum." Yeah, as far would, um, I haven't looked at the ordinance in a long time, so right. um, people, you know, fact check me on that and double check it. But um, for posing as a Muslim. Yeah, I mean, things like, you know, I, I remember specifically about, you know, you can't call your place of worship a mosque, so it has to be just a center or whatever, you know. So uh, what the government would do, there'd be police officers wiping the kalma that's, you know, like printed on the outside of the mosque. They'd be wiping it off in Amdi mosques. They're like, that's Islamic. Tell, what's kalma You're not to allowed to, Yeah, that's the, the Islamic creed of faith. There's no God. Um, God there's Muhammad no God but Allah, and, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So it's the Arabic version of that. On the outside of the mosque, they and they it. will actually wipe that off. Hmm. And police will be like standing by or helping, and because they're like, "Look, you can't make this place even 
pretend to look like a mosque because mm. you guys aren't Muslim. So, yeah. um, but it also becomes difficult where promotions in higher posts, whether in private sector, but mostly in government sector, it's like, well, that guy's an amity. We're not gonna, we're not gonna promote him. So you get held back. Um, schools with scholarships or top placements. If you're an amity, um, you can get held back from those opportunities. Right. So it's sort of systematic discrimination. At, at one level, it's at the government sanction, and then the next, that government is meant to lead, and then that creates and feeds the mob mentality right. of. Hey, just in everyday culture and society, we're going to discriminate against these people. And and I heard Imran Khan was also responsible. By the way, um, is it true that the current prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, was also had a hand in you know discrimination against Ahmadis at some point? Well, so it's it's a little bit more complex than that. I think um, from and I don't follow Pakistani politics very closely, so people can. Uh, will be able to give more nuance than me. But at, at a surface surface level, when Imran Khan started off his politics, he seemed to say a lot of progressive things. And I think a lot of Amadis around the world were like very hopeful. And I think for a large part of his career, he actually meant well in that. And maybe he still does. But as you get more and more closer to electability, you almost have to bow down to those hardline elements. And so, for example, there was um, a very famous Amadi who's, I believe, a professor of economics at, uh, I think, in Harvard, yeah. Atif Mia. Uh, Atif Mia, he's actually one of the top 25 economists in the world. Yeah, so, so this guy's a big deal, listed. super yeah. smart. And, you know, he was ready to leave America and go back to Pakistan to help the country. And a lot of Amadis have this love for Pakistan, and yet the country doesn't love them back. And it's, it's, it's very tragic. Right. And so... He was ready to go back, and Imran Khan was like, hey, yeah, I got to tap this amazing guy. But right. then there was so much pressure, like, how can your cabinet have this amity, or they would say the derogatory term, which is Qadiani. And so, basically, Imran Khan had to let him go. So I don't think go. Imran Khan wanted to, but he knew it was just politically unpalatable. He couldn't survive it if he kept right. it. I, I have so I'll add to that just because of the, the Pakistani politics thing that I, I think you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. So the thing with Imran Khan is, uh, unfortunately, all of these people who Imran Khan, Nawashif, all of these guys who came out, uh, they will condemn the attacks against the Emmadis. They will try to be progressive, but none of them have taken uh, the the um, the step of removing that crap from the passport application. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have that, the antipathy towards and the, the, like the hostility towards Amadi is going to continue. And the Atif Mia isn't the first example. So uh, a lot of people may not know this. Some of the famous Ahmadi Muslims in the world, Maharshala Ali is the Oscar-winning uh, actor who's absolutely brilliant. He's yeah. an Ahmadi Muslim. He's the great. other really famous example is Abdul Sama Salam. Abdul Salam is the only uh, Muslim ever to win a Nobel Prize in any science category. So he won the physics Nobel Prize. He was a nuclear physicist. And he won the prize in, along with Steven Weinberg, who's a famous atheist. You know, you know the guy who said that, you know, good people do good things, evil people do evil things. But for good people to do evil things, it takes religion. So that was, that was him. And Abdus Salam and Weinberg both together received the Nobel Prize in physics. So when Abdus Salam got this, um, Pakistan just kind of, he had to leave Pakistan. He had to set up a lab in Italy. He wanted to send money back to Pakistan and Pakistan refused like they took the only ever science Nobel laureate ever in the Muslim world overall and they're like eh, he's not a Muslim 
who's yeah. just going to reject him. Wow. So it was. Uh, it's that is how deep the hostility is towards the, the and, enemies. And I, let me know, both of you, if you think this is the reason why. Because a lot of people like might think like from all the groups of people that a lot of Muslims could hate so much. Why is it that they're obsessed about certain groups more than the others? And I in and I think people don't understand how. Like, if you're just a Christian and you just have your own book, like, okay, fine, just go be your own, be Christian, be Jewish, be atheist, right? Like, mm. God will deal with you. But to take some of the most, like, Muslims are very sensitive, sensitive about the fact that Muhammad was the last prophet. And to take that and all of a sudden bring another prophet after that, right? Or to change the Quran in any way. Or to, you know, like, these are, they're very sensitive about this. Like, this is you know messing with their ideology right and i right. think that's and for clarification hamadis haven't changed the quran it's the it's the no same no i'm everything. just giving but examples the, of yeah. like things that you could get them to like really piss you could get off. riled up over right. that sort of thing right yeah. like if you bring in your new book and say for example this is my religion like go do whatever you want right but if you say like oh i'm i'm gonna change the i'm change i'm gonna have my i have a quran i just removed two chapters Right? They're mm -hmm. like, what the heck? Like, that is that is a no-no, right? Or that, say, like, I have another Islam, I have an extra, I have a prophet after Muhammad. Like, that's a no-no. It starts wars, yeah. it starts genocides. Right. It's, yeah, it, it is pretty, um, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Like, I, I think that, but, but anyway, go ahead, just respond to that. I was going to add something to it, but. No, is, is that, no. Your, is that the reason you also think, like, well, um, it, it's hard to say because I wasn't there in the sort of, you know, the early days. Mm. But some of the narrative I would get growing up as an Ahmadi was Ahmadiyya was so much more palatable than mainstream Islam. A lot, they were very successful at converting people in the early days. Mm. And the existing ulama, the sort of religious clerics, they felt threatened. Their mm. power base was going. And so the hostility grew. Whether that's really the narrative, um, maybe somebody lived there at that time could... You know, uh, I mean, it sounds very pretty. I can understand mm. how that might just be more PR, yeah. but maybe it's real. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't there. I can't say. The, the, uh, there's another thing I think that is even more powerful. Uh, so the Ahmadiyya sect is um, not only is it is it something that's considered blasphemous or it's apostasy for for a lot of mainstream Muslims, but compared to say the Nizari Ismailis, whose belief system, by the way, which we won't get into right now, is like many orders of magnitude more blasphemous and heretical yeah. than the Ahmadis, but they keep it secret. So they mm, don't yeah. proselytize. They have extreme levels of secrecy where, you know, people who are, uh, yeah. you know, my wife comes from a smiley background. She's, a, I, I know, I know a lot of it, uh, but um, other people I know, they don't even tell their spouses what the yeah. actual nature of the theological beliefs are. So with the Ahmadis, it's very different in the sense that, they not only hold a view that is considered heretical by the mainstream Muslims, but they, preach but they go yeah. out and they proselytize it. It's a missionary it. sect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. their angle sect. is to take over the world, isn't they it? They have their own TV channels. No, their angle is yeah. to spread the faith like Christianity. It's spread the faith, and basically, you know, they have prophecies that one day most of the world will be um, Muslim and, and Ahmadi at that. Right? I, I think so, that's why they're targeted more. And actually, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta plug um, somebody's book. Um, uh Abzul Opal, Dr. Abzul Opal, he wrote a book called Moderate Fundamentalists, and he talks about the cognitive science of religion, but he uses Ahmadiyyat as the backdrop because his father 
was an Amity missionary. He's deceased now, but his father, so he grew up in that world. He saw it, but then he's got the cognitive science of religion background, and he writes about uh, a concept called minimally counterintuitive differences, um, and also maximally counterintuitive differences. So when things are like maximally counterintuitive, it, it, it speaks to what you were just talking about, Ali, about those larger differences. And when people see those larger differences, they're like, oh, that's just so different. Who cares? Who cares? Or to yeah. some degree, who cares? Plus, they're so secretive anyway, it's not a threat. Right. But when you are, and this is where I'm saying that, you know, Amethyst are actually very close to Sunnis more than yeah. Shias in some levels, you know, except for these couple of things that are, yes, they're big, but they're, you know, you can semantically work around them. When you have something that seems so close and the differences are minimally counterintuitive, it's a threat. then that creates more friction and more of a threat because yeah. it's easier to make that jump. Right. So, the, but the, the main goal is, like they actually think the Ahmadi Muslims think that they one day like they're going to keep ad advocating like they're very optimistic about their future, right? Like, yeah, I remember the there's this prophecy. I, I've got to find it because it's I haven't looked at it in a long time, but something to the effect of you know it'll be three centuries and there'll be sort of the victory <laughs> of it. I mean, it's very interesting that and one century is gone now. A religion Two more that to is go. only ten to twenty million right now thinks that one day most of the world becomes. Um, it's kind of cute, I guess. I don't know, but the yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you want, we can sort of talk briefly about the whole population issue, because that is a major scandal for Why? the community. Tell me, tell me. So um, basically, uh, for the longest time, like in the 70s, 80s, and even early 90s, the Amities would generally say, oh, it's a community around 10 million. There'd be some people who are saying, oh, it's probably not even that big. Hmm. But everybody would kind of accept the 10 million figure. For the longest time, that was the case. Now, the fourth Khalifa of the movement, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, who's passed away in 2003, he had for most of the 90s, been really pushing the bleak, which again is the Urdu term for proselytizing or, or preaching or dawah. And so he was pushing the bleak and like, you know, you must uh, bring people to the faith. And, you know, this year I want every Amadi to bring one person or two people or whatever. And so, a lot, you know, there's a lot of sermons and that was a lot of a surge of activity. Then what happened in the late 90s, they started, they do, they make this big sort of, um, Hullabaloo at their annual convention in London of the international bets or basically conversions or acceptance of Ahmadiyya Islam. And so they had announced numbers around the world, right? And it was a big deal. Um, and in I think it was like starting in 1997, I have to dig this up to 2002, 2003. The numbers went from 10 million to 200 million total Ahmadis in the world. And over the span of a couple of years, the figure for India was that there were 80 million, roughly 80 million Ahmadis in India. And at the time, there was only 150 million Muslims in India. So <laughs> at that point, you're saying that one in two Ahmadis, yeah. sorry, one in one two, two Muslims, Muslims. Yeah. in India was an Ahmadi, which is completely, you know, the, the, there's not enough mosques built out there. If you just run into people in the street and do a poll, you, you wouldn't get anywhere yeah, those numbers. Right. Yeah. And so... What did end up happening? And you can go in, you know, uh, I love the internet. You can go in the Wayback Machine and you can see the official page of the Amadea community saying, you know, 200 million, um, you know, pre previously 170 million, 150. And there'd be like they'd have these big numbers, you know, one year they'd be like 40 million people have joined Amadea worldwide this year. And, you know, a lot of people would soak that up. It, you know, the Khalifa of the time would be at an annual convention, maybe right. in Germany, and he'd be like, saying th these numbers and people will be cheering and it's wow. like it's on video i've got a couple of video clips of that too and you know that doesn't normally get circulated now so then what happened is 
after all of that, people were like, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is yeah, not adding up. That can't and, be, right? <laughs> and so after that, the website, again, if you go to the Wayback Machine, you look and it'll say a community who numbers in the tens of millions. Okay, well, what does that mean? That means either from 20 million to 190 million. Right. It's completely ambiguous because they know they had to walk that back. Right. But they've never given Any a public apology or correction like, hey, we got it wrong. We know we announced it and we were like, you know, sort of cheering it on. Look how successful we are. God is on our side. Look at all these numbers. And now it's just crickets. It's silent. They don't mention it. And it's ambiguously referenced so that right. people won't dig into it. Now, if you pressure an Amity like on Twitter or, you know, they'll try to have a private conversation. But if they have to have a public one, they'll say, look, yeah, there was mistakes were made and we've corrected that. Right. You know, but there's never been a public thing because if they announce it publicly, a lot of people will be like, what? Wait a minute. There's not 200 million anymore. Most Amity Muslims are still in the dark about this. Right. They, they should have hired so Sean Spicer, right? The guy who did the... Um about Trump's inauguration numbers. <laughs> so, so right now we're on the fifth Khalifa, right? We're on the fifth Khalifa, yeah. We're in the fifth. He just recently came to Vancouver. He met with Trudeau. Okay, yeah. And there's pictures, like, there's some, a lot of Westerners uh, here love it. They're like, oh, look, they're wearing suits and ties and it looks like a business. They are, you know, these are, they're pro-capitalism and they feel like, yeah. this is like, wait, like a lot of people here are like, well, this is an Islam we can get behind. So they're doing right. their PR very well. Uh, See, yeah, I, I, does that I, too. I mean, he, yeah, I tell people that, look, even if, even if you peg Amadeus back at 10 million. Right. If they're only one percent of the Muslim population worldwide, but I don't think I, that. Yeah, but like I'm, I'm just telling what other people say. I don't, right. I don't believe in Islam. Just want to make it clear. Like I'm against <laughs> any form of reform or all, all of this nonsense. But go on, sir. Yeah, but so even if they're one percent of the Muslim population worldwide, in the West at least, um, you know, it feels like they're maybe ten percent or fifteen percent or even twenty percent of sort of the. Uh, media coverage, you know, the feel-good stories. And I, I remember Douglas Murray once wrote about this, where he's like, you know, every feel-good story you see in Europe published about um, Muslims who are doing charity work or protesting terrorism or whatever, or not in my name, that kind of stuff, you know, the kind of things that people have been wanting, right. generally, most of the time, it's the Amities who are behind that. And part of it is because they're very organized, uh, but part of it is because they very much own that narrative. They don't feel like they need to the, they don't have to do gymnastics around that, right. where other Muslims are tread a little bit more carefully about clear statements denouncing things. They 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 are they're banking on all the negative uh, PR that that you know the Sunni Islam and Shia Islam is getting. Yeah, well. but they try to be careful not calling out Sunnis per se. They're just right. like, hey, well, look yeah. at what Islam can be, because what they also want to do is right. not upset the Sunnis who might be like, hey, these guys are expressing a lot of leadership. Maybe I should just convert over. These right. are the leaders of today right. in the Muslim Ummah, at least in the West. What, what are yeah. some of the end time narratives? I was watching a video of some um, Ahmadi scholars and they were talking about some Jewish conspiracies and like weird shit like that. Like, uh, Well, I, I don't know if that's necessarily tied to end times, but for example, the fourth Khalifa, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, um, he wrote in his book, I think it was in 1991, uh, The Gulf Crisis and the New World Order. It's a compilation of his sermons. And in there he talks about, you know, the protocols of the elders of Zion. So he's very much in favor that that is real. Oh and so he, there's there's a, a, a sort of an exegesis of that. I think it's called Waters Flowing Westward or Eastward or something like that. Um, and so he talks about that and he's pointing people to that book saying, I know people 
poo-poo the protocols of the elders of Zion, but people should read this other thing, which basically explains how much of it lines up and stuff. I haven't dug into that stuff, but I did create um, a video once, a short clip of him talking about that, where he's very much in favor of it. Current apologist for Amadeus was saying, look, he just thinks it's a possibility and he thinks it's important to talk about. But, they, you know, so they try to water it down a little bit. But I actually got a YouTube copyright takedown notice from the Thaher Foundation, which puts up a lot of his videos. Wow. Because for sharing that clip, because, sure. you know, they but it's uh, fair even use. You were reviewing it, right? Well, I wasn't reviewing it. I just shared it at that time because at the time I wasn't revealing my voice. So it's just a clip. Maybe if I take it again right, and actually right. comment on it, it'll be better. But it's sort of like they, you know, and I, it wasn't like a 30 second soundbite. I'm doing like the full, not the full, but right. like the 10 minutes that he, or eight minutes or right, something right, that right. he's talking about that so that people don't say, oh, it's out of context or whatever, because I wanted to highlight that bit. But right. they're very sensitive to that, uh, right, which yeah. tells me that, you know, we're hitting a nerve. But it's not just them. Like I saw some so-called so so scholars talking about these, the like their end time narratives, and it was very anti-Jewish. It was a very like kind of like a lot of the hadith that Sunnis and uh, Shias have were like. That's Jews. common to Islam generally. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. So those hadith, what a, a lot of Sunnis and Shias who rejected Mirza Ghulam Ahmed right. would be like, hey, you didn't fulfill these hadith literally and, you know, being wrapped in these two garments and descending to the next to the tower in Damascus and all, you know, there's all this kind so, of stuff. And again, I haven't looked at that in a few years, but a lot of that stuff, the Ahmadis would say a lot of that has been exaggerated by people over time. They're not reliable hadith and to the degree that there's some truth to them they're metaphorical symbolisms for different things that would happen and so then all the apologetic creative forces come in and they but, explain it away but these videos weren't even apolog like they weren't explain they were they weren't trying to make excuses for it like the stuff that they were saying these scholars were very much anti were these amity scholars yeah I could share it I'll share it to you later okay I'll if I can find it but I'm just saying that as the I mean, maybe they're not blowing shit up, but there's a lot of the misogyny is still there, right? A lot of the anti-Jewish feelings are still there. So the anti-Jewish thing, I don't really see that overtly in your day-to-day -day community. You'll have Amadis who, you know, through their official organizations are helping Jewish synagogues that right. get vandalized and things like that. What about that. misogyny? So, is, that, is, is there a lot of that there? Okay, so, um, you know, and, and that's a bigger topic. Um, the Amadis will stand by the verses in the Quran that say, you know, two female witnesses for one male witness, but they will try to contextualize it and say, look, it's just for financial transactions and it's two witnesses, not, um, uh, but they have no woman leader, for example, like all, they don't leader. have a woman Khalifa. There's the women don't vote for the Khalifa. They're not in the top level consultative bodies. Right. Um, and I actually wanted to, sorry, sorry, I wanted to interject and say this. I haven't talked for a while, so I've been very yeah, good, you, Armin. Yeah, sorry, you've been quiet for too long. I am, I'm listening to you guys. I've, I talked a lot before. Everybody knows that. You know, I, I don't stop talking. But I have to say this, that whenever we talk about um, even the Ismaili sect, right, who claim to be very progressive, they all claim gender equality. You know, the Ahmadiyya, the Ismaili sect, they all claim gender equality. And they say, you know, yeah, we're, you know, modernizing modern world, everything. They've never had a single female um, spiritual leader, single yeah. female imam, female khalifa, female, female aga khan. It has not happened. And it's not mm -hmm. that there haven't been good, worthy successors. The current aga khan's daughter, 
is actually a brilliant woman, but she is not going to be his successor. It's just yeah. not going to happen. For Amethyst, so, we'll say, look, to be a successor, it's also a spiritual successor. Spiritual successor has to lead prayers, and when they're menstruating, they can't do that. So part of the, you know they're like a part-time leader. So God has commissioned prophets and which know, is misogynistic leaders. inherently as yeah. well, right? So yeah. it's a, it's a bit of a tautology. I mean, they create the distinction. Right. You know, yeah. God could have I, just as easily said, "Hey, even if you're menstruating, no big deal." I, I, I am very. Yeah, I was because you know you were talking, Armin. You said that they reject violence against these people, even if though they disapprove on them. And and I have to mention that I had the honor of being mentioned. Like my my tweet was mentioned by the current, um, you know, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, right? The current, the current Khalif. Yes, really? on, uh, in 2016, uh, on one of his Friday sermons. Wow. Uh, because I had seen a meme, and I didn't really think. I thought it was a mainstream Islamic thing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I was partly, very partly in the wrong on this. But um, mm. there was a, a sort of meme where it had a fa his face, and it said, the quote was, those who shed the blood of the innocent have nothing to do with Islam and the Holy Prophet. Mm. Right. So I took, I took that quote, and I said, and by innocent, we don't mean infidels, gays, lesbians, apostates, and women who wear shorts. It was tongue-in-cheek, but yeah. then people picked up on the fact that this was, uh, he's Ahmadi, so even though they disapprove of those things, that doesn't mean that they shed their blood. And I was talking about it in a mainstream Islamic context, yeah. right. so yeah. it caused a lot of stuff. And, and that can he, cause confusion, and I even try, yeah, I even try to, like, clarify, you know, I, we I, sometimes I just say Islam or Muslims in general for brevity, but sometimes we have to be. Yeah. And, and I, was, I was speaking about that specific quote. That yeah. have nothing to do with Islam and the Holy Prophet. Yeah. I was like, no, that's not true. There are many people who do shed the blood of the innocent. They have yeah. everything to do with Islam and the Holy Prophet. So that quote, I was challenging. I was yeah. like, I, and I'm they're going to take aware. it as if it's against their version of right. Islam. But so, but he did mention uh, the tweet, and he was really upset about it. He's like, we murtad on Twitter, and you know, like, yeah, it was uh, pretty funny. I was like, wow, this is like my claim to fame. It's funny. Um, in any case. One thing before um, Ali, before we go to the patron questions, right? Ali, have you documented the patron questions in the live? I have them. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. I got them. So I just want to uh, get this, and this is a, something I don't know. I'm just checking with you if it's true or not. Uh, if, for example, if you look at like Mormons, for example, right? Mm -hmm. They, if you look at what they focus on and the things they say, it's mo they mostly focus in their own community. They focus on the things that s makes them different from other Christians. But when they are trying to be accepted in society, they focus on the things that makes them similar to other Christians, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, for example, the Bible is not very a major for even Jesus is not a major focus for Mormons, right? It's mostly their the books that you know that's the Book of Mormon and the, you know their own people. They mostly yeah. focus on that. Is this, is this the same thing when it, when it comes to Ahmadis? Like, is sort of, and that's a really good point, because I, I want to make a point here, mm. um, and it ties into a few things that we've been talking about. Mm. Um, a, a friend of mine who actually came out publicly as an Ahmadi as well, um, plug for his website, um, uh, dreamedofyou.wordpress.com. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, Great guy. Yeah, just last Ramadan, he said, I'm going to study the Quran. He read it, and he was like, okay, I don't believe in this stuff. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, so he's got a great blog post about his story. Um, he did, he, he's a software guy, so he ran uh, like sort of a, a word, like content cloud based on the Khalifa's, like, you know, the last, I don't know, X years worth of sermons. And Muhammad doesn't come up as much as like Amity specific terms, right? He's got this like, there we go. I, I, I've got to get that graphic and show it. And what ends up happening is 
when you have a religious movement like this, they'll say, look, you know, the Hadith, there's so many that are unreliable, they're out of context, blah, blah, blah. So Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of Ahmadiyya, he wrote like 80 something, I think 81 books or something like that. Quite a lot of books. So he wrote so many of those. And then the Khalifas are giving sermons all the time. And so Ahmadis are basically saying, look, this is these people are divinely inspired. The mm-hmm. Khalifa is representative of God. So I don't need to go and look at unreliable Hadith or whatever. And I don't need to just look at the right. surface version of the Quran. I can look at their exegesis, the way they explain it, the way they talk about it in the sermons, um, the rulings they give, because these are God's representatives on earth. on earth. And so what ends up happening is the content that gets cycled and that is in the minds of everybody is more the things that the Khalifas over the last hundred years have said, more the things that are from Mirza Ghulam Muhammad's writing in a more modern time where he's got more better apologetics for Islam than stuff from 1300 years ago. Because right. he knows, like, I, I, I got to sort of patch this up to make it more palatable. Right. So then what's in the Amadi Muslim psyche is so much this stuff and less so... Uh, the, the, well, I mean, the Quran is there, but it's, you know, the way it's 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 taken. You know, you even look at the translations, Amadis reject uh, an eternal hell. And so they translate it in a way where it's Wait, like... Wait, that's the major theme of the Quran. <laughs> no, yeah, but that. they say, no, it's temporary. You get, per, you, know, you, oh. get, you know, you get healed of your sins and then you move on, right? So, so what, I like that. I think I'm so, going to convert. <laughs> yeah, so what ends up happening is a lot of Amadis will say, look... Islam is really peaceful. You other Muslims have got the wrong version. You need to come to us. But the thing is, the way Amadis are able to like not have anyone ever in their history over 120 years or so um, ever have been involved in any act of terrorism anywhere is because what's being fed to them is a better message vis-a-vis, you know, violence and things like that. It's a much better message than what you're prone to as a mainstream Muslim picking up at the mosque where there's maybe some elements who are a little bit jihadi and, uh, right. uh, you know, sort of more hardcore. So okay. that's how Amadis are able to do this. But they will spill, they will uh, put the PR out there that, look, this is what Islam is. Islam and is, see, yeah. Islam can be this way. But really, it's because they've got this other narrative glommed on, which takes the limelight and the mind share of people. Right. That's yeah, but, how that's been, but this has been very helpful to me generally engaging with them because usually when, when I started doing this and I started coming into criticizing Islam and writing against it and uh, to having these theological arguments, I got a lot of response from Emmedes. And yeah. it really helped me when I was writing my book because a lot of the apologetics, right? A lot of the apologetic arguments about why Islam is peaceful and why it's nonviolent and everything's taken out of context. Um, I preempted a lot of those arguments in my book, yeah. but the reason I was and aware of them really well, I got to say, really, really well. Thank you, thank you. But the the reason I learned that by by engaging with Ahmadis, because the kind of apologetics people American Muslims are coming up with now to defend Islam, like the Ahmadis, the Ahmadis have been doing this for decades and decades, yeah. and they've really honed them. They to have. the extent that you know every violent verse, they have a huge explanation for it. So yeah. it is much more. Um, there's you know, a lot of intellectual to... leadership from the Amadis in modern day. And, and people could talk, right. look at other sort of revivalist people like Abdu and things like that. There were other thinkers that predated Mirza Ghulam Ahmed who thought yeah. like this. Right. But, you know, his magic was kind of synthesizing it together and packaging it up and giving it a label. See, this exactly. is, this is yeah. what I think Ahmadi Islam is actually extremely dangerous. And this is not me talking about Ahmadi Muslims themselves. Just the, just 
this whole like unknowingly these people are doing something extremely dangerous because their whole message I mean they went among themselves they say like we're Ahmadis but when they go out and say this is Islam right this right. is Islam they give they, air cover for the concept of Islam in general right I mean they don't focus on the real teachings of the Quran and the Hadith and Muhammad uh, and they have their other things but they sell that on Islam and basically they're giving legitimacy and authority yeah. to the Quran and to its, all of its horrible teaching, even right. if they don't focus on it, right? Yeah. Now, to be fair to them, they would say, look, we've interpreted it in a way where it's not the horrible thing you think it is, right? So, um, but they, uh, yeah, they absolutely give, you know, I say they give air cover right. to the, the general concept of Islam. And so a lot of people think, oh, okay, Islam isn't that problematic. Right. Well, mainstream Islam, followed by 99% of the Islamic world, is the problematic thing that a lot of people think it is. You know, there's elements of, you know, there's good and bad everywhere, but um, it's, it, you know, the, the point is that the version that Amethyst portray is not an accurate representation no. of what Islam is in the majority of the world. Are you going to make more videos on showing that exactly, like going into the details about what they got, what they're getting wrong? Or no? Like, yeah, I do want to talk about. Uh, there's so many other topics, and and I m my first video, I didn't want to make it that long, but I just felt like if I just did one short video, there'll be a whole bunch of people saying, "Oh, what about this? What about that?" Or you never studied this, and what about you know? You, and so, you did the same thing. You preempted a lot of the, and it was beautiful the way that you did it. Like the I, only complaint uh, I have is that the double speed feature doesn't work in your video for some reason. Do you know? Oh, why? I don't what? know. Why. No, I don't know why. The what yeah, feature? The double speed feature. Yeah, some people would say, "Hey, you speak too slow," and some people would be like, "Hey, is no, this an ASMR video?" I, I listen. To, I listen to everything on double speed um, or triple speed if it's a podcast. But for your video, that feature is not there. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I, I didn't even control that. I just yeah. and, and you do have a very. Uh, I I I I am getting this as a consensus from many other people who've heard it as well. But I also think this a very sexy voice. I mean, you sound <laughs> very, very good, even yeah, though a bit, podcast, a bit too it's sexy. It's distracting. <laughs> yeah, and that, when you slow it down, it's even more. So yeah. I think that there will be a lot of people who will uh, just get your message subconsciously just because they yeah. like hearing your voice. So Part of it I, for me, I, I wanted to say something really quick about yeah, that, is yeah. that um, my audience, people would be like, hey, you could do this, and the video would go more viral, and it would do this. And, and I said, look, I'm purposely not doing some of those things because I don't need a million subscribers. I don't need a thousand subscribers. I don't need a lot of views. I want it to be as if I'm talking to my Amelie Muslim friends and family who for a lot of, you know, a lot of these people, even the concept of an ex-Muslim is like, what the hell? Um, it's so new that if I don't kind of slow it down and give them time to kind of digest while I'm speaking, it's going to fly over their head. And that's, right, not right. A, that's not a knock on their intelligence. It's just, it's such a shocker. I want sort of time to process. I and agree. it's targeted that, yeah, to those people. Yeah. And for the mainstream YouTube world who's like, oh man, this is too slow or nah, I'm not interested. I'm like, you know what? For you guys, it's not for you. You know, if you get benefit from it, great. But it was really, I, I sent it out to the world, but it's really for those people that I wanted to talk to, even if it's just a few hundred people. Because from those few hundred, that will become a few thousand right. and a few tens of thousands. And then it will grow from there organically. Uh, that was my, that's exactly what my approach was too. Patron but, questions. Um, yeah, I, I, I just have one, a couple of things I really, really want to touch on. Okay. Just, it'll be very, very quick. Um, first of all, um, your parents and your family, have they gotten uh, pushback from the Ahmadiyya community that they're part of because of your video? Um, not formally, not yet, that I um, have heard of. 
Um, but there's a lot of informal chatter. Um, and that gets back to my parents. Um, and, you know, they're religious people. They're devoutly religious, but they haven't studied it, obviously, to the level that any of us have. And so they don't understand why even things should be critical. And I, and I, you know, so yeah, some of that's come through, but what it is, is I think 90% of the community is a bunch of people who just see it as an identity. It's a sort of a, you know, most Amadis are Punjabi in ethnicity. Mm. It's, you know, sometimes I jokingly refer to it as a Punjabi social club. And so they mm. feel like, why are you attacking our beautiful social community. club or community? Right. Mm. And the thing is, there's this beautiful community and I love a lot of the the camaraderie, the support people give when somebody dies and they go to their homes. And there's so many beautiful things there. And I think a lot of people see me criticizing Amadeus and saying, why are you attacking that thing? It's so beautiful. Mm. And to them, I would say, look, I'm not attacking that. And I agree with you. That part is so beautiful. And I, I really like that part of the community. I'm attacking this other thing over here, which is the theology and the pronouncements. Yeah, they, they have in it that most people are not thinking about. That's what I'm attacking. Right. There is also this issue that you know, okay, not only are you attacking this community, but you're attacking this community that everybody else has been attacking from the outside for so yeah. long, right. and now you're doing it. Why from the are outside. you adding to that, Dave? Saying, but but I got from your video, I got the view, and and I, I don't know if you have articulated in these words, but you know, I I would my advice is that you should is just say, listen. I want to be part of this community. I love this community. I've always been in it. I think it's beautiful. I want to be part of it, and I just don't want the ticket to be part of it to be this the fact that I have to believe in all these things and adhere right. to all these rules. Yeah. I want to be able to think the way I want and still be part of this community regardless of what I believe um, yeah. That without the ideological burden. And I think that that is um, a way to probably show more solidarity with the community than the people of the community are showing. In a, yeah. in a way, right? I think that's more possible with like Ismailis, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, with Amadis, since it's so built in like to be part of this community, there's these conditions that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed laid out that technically speaking, it's so infused. It's almost like, um, like I did formally resign from the community because right. I said, I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, this was a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and uh, that's and it's not you know and I and I wrote a very cordial letter to the current um, head of it in Canada, um, who I used to work with a lot uh, when I was young, and he was a mentor to me, and I, I loved him, and I still think he's a brilliantly kind man. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm going to disagree with him on theology. There's probably a lot of administrative things that decisions he's made that I'm going to disagree with, but you know, my interactions with him had always been wonderful. And I wrote him a nice letter, and I said, you know, I'm resigning, and you know, kind of gave an outline. Um, but I knew that I can't because I, I'm respecting their rules, which technically say, look, if you want to be a part of this community, these are our conditions. But what I try to do is maintain the friendships I have with the community. If there's some elder in the community who's passed away, I would still go to their viewing at the mosque. You know, um, there would be a funeral prayer. I would stand in the prayer line and I would just be in silence. You know, I'm not praying. But I'm in silence because I'm trying to show my respect and solidarity in the way that they would have liked to have been remembered without compromising my beliefs. And there's ways to do that. And yeah. did your did your did your family knew that you have left before you had the video coming out? Yeah. So I mean, I started questioning at 19 when I was super active in preaching, and they saw me having conversations with religious leaders. There was a missionary in charge at the time. Um, there was a national secretary, and by the way, I've got a blog post, reasononfaith.org slash the things we think, and that details this kind of story. Um, and in there, um, you know, I'm having all these conversations about my religious doubts. So they saw me 
becoming, you know, very religious. Even the missionary came into my house and told my dad, he's like, your son's more religious than you are. You know, so <laughs> they're not going to complain about my religiosity. And then when they saw me finally put my questions in a book mm. and, and the missionary and the national secretary at the time, the, the whole religious leadership in Canada, nobody could answer it. And, and, and definitely not officially. They saw that, look, our son has done his work. So instead of getting upset at me for leaving the faith and I was not praying anymore, I was like, I don't believe in this stuff. You know, I don't define myself, but I know I'm not that. I know that's not true. Right. And so they looked at it and they didn't come after me. They were like, oh, but we wish you would pray and things like that. But they, they wouldn't be hard about it. Instead, they would turn their sort of canons on the religious leadership and be like, guys, you need to give a, my son answers because they're under the impression that Islam is true, Ahmadiyyat is true. We're always talking about the true Islam and we have the answers. We're so logical. We're so rational. We're right. smarter than all the other Muslims and this and that. And they're like, what the hell? We're a missionary sect and you can't even answer my son's questions. You know, So that was where their focus was. Hmm. Wow. So, Pretty yeah. supportive parents then, hey? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to a degree. Um, so for many years they knew. And for many years I was like, you know, I'm just going to live my life. But I was never living authentically. I was always careful of, you know, um, I can't tip off that I don't actually believe and I'm because I don't want to upset them. You know, it, it affects you in so many ways. And this is what we talk about. It's not it's not about terrorism. You know, for a lot of us, it's just the everyday life. Like as a guy, for example, you know, um, and I detail this in one of my posts. I think it's called Lessons Learned, one of my recent ones. Um, I was in my early 20s just meeting up with a couple of friends who were girls uh, from high school, sort of like a reunion after a couple of years, platonic friends for lunch. And I had a sibling who said, oh, um, you met up with a couple of friends who were girls. Were there any guys there? And I said, no, there was just a couple of my friends. And they're like, what if somebody saw you? There was no other guys there. It looks bad and things like, you know, and, you know, especially when you've got, you know, sisters who have to get married and things like that, the perceptions are so dire. Now, to be fair, I think my siblings would probably relax about it now. Um, but back then, especially when everybody's sort of at a marriage age, it was a big deal. And so you're constantly like monitoring yourself, which means, you know, even if you're like, okay, I don't believe in this, I need to go meet somebody else that I could marry and date, you know, and you've got a girlfriend who wants to hold your hand in public. Well, sorry, you can't do that, you know, uh, or you're being really careful or you're paranoid. Um, because somebody from the mosque might see you and then they'll tell your parents, people will gossip, you'll get back to your parents. And it's like, I just wanted to live my life. Mm. And so you go for so many years, I didn't realize that I was living inauthentically, not even moving on with my life mm. because I'm like, well, I don't want to lie because I don't like lying and I don't want to put my parents in an awkward situation. So you take the, you know, the Venn diagram, the subset of what's sort of acceptable and you're basically this robotic shell going through life. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so did your parents watch their coming your coming out video? Um, they will be. Um, my dad's a bit hard of hearing, so some of the parts with music, he was like, I, I can't understand this. So I've got to update the script, and maybe he can read it. Right. Uh, and I will. And they're supporting. They're supportive of the video. I, I showed them the first ten minutes, um, the day before it went out, to give them a heads up. But I purposely let them know that I'm working on something. Mm. But I didn't give them too many details because I didn't want them to be go going to the imam at the mosque. Hey, our son's working on a video. You need to come over and do an intervention on him. Right. You know, because uh, it's way beyond that. Is that what they would? Uh, what is that? What their reaction would they have been? They tried that, I think, about uh, ten live stream years the ago. Exorcism. Wait, say that. You know, 
They tried uh, 10, 12 years ago. 10, 12 years ago, they bought a really uh, nice imam, uh, a really genuine guy. Actually, I feature him in my video as a you know a really kind man. Um, and we had a nice chat and stuff. But so your uh, sorry, just make let me let's make this clear. Your parents, the parents yeah. brought an imam to to your home just to save you. Well, to be like to try to figure out if they could sort of address my religious doubts so that I could come back to the community. Mm. So, but they were so they were. They wanted you back, but they weren't aggressive about it. They were nice about it, but they still wanted yeah. you back. Is that a yeah. good summary? Okay, okay. Yeah, and I think most Amity Muslim parents are good that way. Now, I, there's a subreddit that we have um, for ex-Amity Muslims and questioning Amity Muslims. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. And well, I guess we'll put it in the show notes, but basically it's Reddit, slash, like uh, r slash Islam underscore Amadiya. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in there, you can see so many people who are in dire situations who are feeling like they're going to get disowned, they're going to get kicked out. Right. There was even a post, I think, today or yesterday of somebody in that situation. But most Amadis would disavow that sort of behavior. Mm. And, and they say that's So right. your parents were nicer than average. Um, are, yeah. are, more, are, are there, do you know if there's a lot of people leaving the Ahmadi faith? So, you know, Amadis, you know, generally Muslims in, in general are, are concerned about social perceptions and they're really quiet about it. Um, with Amadis, I'd like to say instead of six degrees of separation, it's like three degrees of separation around the world. Everybody sort of, know, you know, I can have two hops and know somebody like in the Philippines who's right. an Amadi, right. you know. Um, so everybody is so concerned about perceptions that even if they're not religious, they won't say it because it's so taboo. It affects so much of your social network, right. the friends you're with. So I think there's a lot of people who are quietly ghosting away. They just kind of don't show up or people call them, hey, we've got a monthly meeting and they're like, oh, I'm busy or whatever. They change their phone number. Don't tell people, you know, there's things like that going on. Mm. Um, but so many people feel stuck and they're like, you know, I'd rather meet somebody on my own, but it would hurt my parents. So then they go through the arranged marriage system. They get an introduction. They might meet them for a few times mm. and then they get married and then they're like, you know, I really don't believe in this thing. But now it's like, shit, my in-laws, I'm going to piss them off if I leave. I can't. Then they have kids and they're like, if I don't take them to Sunday school, people are going to gossip about my parents and my in-laws. So I got yeah, like a you know religious Sunday school right. yeah. for kids, right? That's very organized in most Muslim communities, including the Amadis at the mosque, Wait, you know. Do you guys have your thing at Sundays? You mean Friday? No, no, yeah, because Sunday's no, no. off. My my oh. nieces and nephews go to it too. They go yeah. to oh, Sunday really? school for okay. Islamic yeah. studies. We didn't have Juma this problem because Friday. in Iran, Fridays have the same Juma. Right, right. right. Yeah, because, growing up in Iran, is, it's going to be this different. This is a problem with Western Muslims: is that their their day off is not on Friday; it's on Sunday instead, right? So, yeah. 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 So it, it, it's a Western Muslim thing, not right, an Amity. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, most communities have like a Sunday school in the West, right. whatever religious community. Um, so, you know, kids would go there. So now they're starting to learn this stuff. So what ends up happening, it's kind of like, you know, we're back to Blaise Pascal. You just, you're kind of in this environment constantly. You can't really criticize it. If you step away, it's going to hurt you. So you're like, at some point, you're like, you know what? I got to pay the bills. I got to go to work. Who cares? And all your childhood friends, because Amity's are constantly having this event, that event. So your whole social network is Amity's from the start. So they make it socially very painful to leave because mm. by the time you hit the age of sort of reason and you think, wait, I don't want to belong. Now you're like, oh shit, I've got a lifetime right. of friendships and relationships I'm going to have to throw away. So there's a sort of an emotional, social uh, grooming and blackmail that right. forces you into this bubble. And then you don't want to hurt your parents. So then you get into a marriage. And then even if that person doesn't really believe now you're going to hurt your in-laws, then your kids are in school at Sunday school. And so this whole thing just feeds this network effect. That, and then you're stuck. 
And yeah, that is, is the thing that that applies to the Muslim community as a whole. I mean, this is a right. very common thing with ex-Muslims. But it's more intense with empathy it is more intense. Of the three degrees of separation. And right. this is why so, the organization like the XMNA comes in to try to provide an alternative community. Right. Right. So right. I also tell, you know, a lot of um, uh, ex amethys or questioning amethys in um, North America. I'm like, look, we have communities. I know you're going to be hurting. You're going to want that. And so, you know, for people who are questioning, I always tell them, look, Muslimish, it's not available in other parts of the world. But if you're lucky enough in North America, right. that exists. And they accept questioning Muslims. Uh, if you're an ex-Muslim and you want to be just exclusively around ex-Muslims, there's XMNA. And of course, in other parts of the world, CEMB and ex-Muslims of um, Norway and there's, you know, New Zealand and Australia's got a group or a couple of groups. So, you know, these things are now all around. But I first found of XMNA in 2015, and I talk about this in my video, and by having that community, that gave me the strength and the impetus to say, you know, I can speak up about this. And I realized that I had been living a closeted, inauthentic, restricted life. Mm. And then what happens is other people around you and extended family will say, see, that guy left Islam, even though he's quiet about it, he left Islam. And certain life milestones that happen for other people, he's left out. And it's like, are you, are you serious? You know, I'm actually trying to placate Muslims, sacrificing my own life, my, my own personal development, my own authenticity, and then now that's being used against me. Hmm. So yeah, that's why I'm like, enough of this bullshit. Mm, uh, you know, right. and that's where in my video I say, I call bullshit on this culture of intimidation. Ooh, enough. I like your enough. aggressive side, Sahil. Right? <laughs> and so um, it's time that we speak up about this because it affects our lives, so many people's everyday lives. It's such a mind job done on you. Right. And it's, it's enough of this bullshit. And so we have to come out, we have to speak out, we have communities. And, and one of the other reasons I started, uh, you know, with my alias is because I remember there was an Amity apologist who was challenging Muhammad Syed, uh, president of EXMNA, to a debate. And that poor guy's got a full-time job, plus he does so much volunteering, you know, he's just trying to run the organization. And I thought to myself, you know, he doesn't know the Amity apologetics. It's not fair to pit him against and Amity, who's going to have all kinds of apologetics he's not really versed with, it's my job right. as an ex-Muslim from the Amadiya community to take on the Amadiya apologists right. in a friendly, you know, good-spirited way, but to dig into the issues. And so yeah. I thought, I need to get involved. And at the same time, there was, you know, the sort of the Sam Harris, Ben Affleck thing that had just happened. Right. So there was multiple touch points, and I was like, I need to get involved. And so originally, I was going to do it under my own name, and then I thought, you know what? As soon as I do, people are going to go, you know, the Amadiya community or the Jamaat for short is going to be like, hey, that guy, he is uh, persona non grata. He's left. He's he, forget him. Right. And so then anything else I say is going to get ignored. So that's why I thought the best way for me to do this hmm. is to do this under an alias. They can't attack me personally. They can't go after ad hom. They can't attack my family. They're going to have to focus on the issues. And then when I have enough material out there. I will take ownership of the alias, right. and now they can't ignore me. But I, 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 I've, I've never seen this side of the, this more aggressive side of you. I like it because no, because, I, I, I love that you. Let, let did me this let, and, let me finish this yeah. because a lot of people don't know uh, because we've been in touch with you for for a long time. You know, again, I mention this every time. I'm so happy that you're out of the closet because every time you're in the live chat. Uh, you have reason on Facebook. No more stress. <laughs> yeah, I'm always stressing out over giving out your name. 
But yeah. but you uh, the way you talk, the way you address these things is very friendly, very passive. So the few times that you actually call things bullshit and stuff, like yeah. But another thing that people don't know that I just have to thank before we go to Patreon questions is that uh, you are really good at organizing, documenting stuff, uh, and a lot of like uh, behind the scenes, you're responsible for making a lot of projects that other people ran happen. Uh, so thank you for all of that, even though like you never came at, um, but, but, but I, I'm really glad that you're now open. I can't wait to see more of your content because now that, now that you do it with your face on camera, it's going to get a lot more attention. So yeah. And I, I want to say, so Sahel is also, uh, he is very concerned about how this image comes out because I think that you, you don't just want to make a point. You actually want to uh, go out there and make a difference. And for that, like, we'll, I'll bring up this issue like you are very um, your approach like a lot of ex-Muslims have very aggressive approaches and you're, <laughs> you're used to all me. of that yeah. huh you're talking about me yeah but I'm not saying it's a bad thing or, right, right, I mean, right. I, I, even I have more of an aggressive right, right. approach no, 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 no. but but the thing is that you understand where those approaches are coming from so okay. I'm also going to say right now that in your city you run the XMNA chapter and you run the I Muslim run it, chapter yeah. Yeah, you co-run it. The you're one of the uh, guys who organizes all of that. So you're involved in XMNA at a, at a leadership level. You're involved involved in Muslimish at a leadership level, and you're very very committed to it. And one of the questions, of patron questions, kind of ties into this is uh, they 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 want to know which ex-Muslims did Sohail mentor from behind the scenes, um, and we'll get into that as well. But I think this was one of the reasons that the original thumbnail that we had. So here's the thing. We had a thumbnail oh, yeah. of... Uh, That's me, by the way. Don't blame Sahel for that. That was all me. Yeah. So the image that we had was... Uh, and I, I, I kind of liked it, too. You know, when I first saw it, is that you had the current Khalifa with an X on him, and then you had uh, a picture of Sahel with a check mark, And right. you did yeah. not think that that represented what you wanted to do. Right. Right. All right? Yeah. Yeah, so you you made that known, and I just wanted. I'm gonna uh, say for that. the I'm record gonna, that that's I'm something gonna, that I'm gonna change that. Okay, that's more that reflects more of my kind of aggressive way of like presenting things. Yeah. yeah. So Hale is. I appreciate that, Armin. Thank okay. you. Right. Yeah, and and the thing is that so Hale actually, when it comes to other people doing that kind of thing, he is very tolerant, accepting, and supporting of it. It's just that when it's your own message, you you want to make sure that it hits the okay. right notes, right, and yeah. represents you. So I think a lot I of want, people. Who take more my approach don't necessarily recognize that there are some people who've been through real pain with Muslim communities and theology that's a lot more vicious and they have every right to be angry and they have every right to stay sort of more aggressive right mm -hmm. um, so there's different approaches and they're all they all have their time and place they all have their context they all have their reasons and um, so you know the only advice I ever give is when you are more aggressive, if you can, if you're good at communicating and you can communicate a bit of the context that goes with the target of that aggressiveness, then that can be right. uh, that can be helpful. No, yeah, yeah I mean, um, a lot of people think like aggressive means no nuance. That's obviously mm -hmm. not the case. It could be aggressive. I mean, the, the kind of ideas I think we're fighting against, if it was if it was packaged under anything other than religion, most people would be extremely aggressive against it. I think yeah. it's just a double standard when we talk about the same kind of teachings that is packaged under religion. When we go after right. it, people are like, "No, people like don't don't be so be nicer, don't be so hostile." But if the same people, same teachings, 
under something, anything other than religion, no, everybody would call it bullshit. Yes. There would be no I amount always, of tolerance for it, right? Yeah, I always think of like... Just really quickly, yeah. that um, there's a difference between what we have a right to say, which I completely support, and what can be effective, and depending on which audience you have. And sometimes those things are different. So sometimes the criticism can be, hey, why are you saying that? And yes, you, me, we have the right to say it, mm. but it might not even be the the best thing for what we're trying to achieve. Well, my experience has been the more hostile I've gotten, the more Muslims have come to me. Uh, one thing, like for but example, they come to you with an open mind. Yes, yes, because I've been tr I have been trying to get Mus Muslims to talk to me for for example for many like on camera, off camera, and mm. a lot of times it's very very difficult for to even start a conversation. But the one time that I got. The most amount of Muslims wanting to talk to me was right after something I did that most people told me that if you do this, Armin, you're going to, no Muslim would ever listen to you. You're going to lose that audience, right? When I had the Allah is gay sign and yeah. I went that out there, people told me, Armin, what are you trying to do? Like, you go, you're trying to ch convince Muslims to leave Islam and you do stuff like this. They're not going to listen to you. They're going to, this is so insulting to them. It's not effective. But it's very interesting because I have right at a, right after I did that, I have never had this many Muslims come to me after that trying to have a conversation with me. Yeah, so I can, it's I can exactly kind of, the opposite of what people tell you. Yeah, I, so, I can uh, actually vouch for that with uh, with Alishpa too, because Alishpa's got a very aggressive approach, like Armin does, and uh, she gets loads. Of the the more she does it, there's more Muslim people who want to come and talk to her. Mm -hmm. She has many more Muslims in her following and audience than even I do in mine. So. And I think I think you know, Armin, you and I especially should probably have yeah. a more detailed conversation because some of those things I will say, you know, I have some disagreement interpretate interpretation, and I think there's some things that we can unpack there. Um, but you know, that speaks to a wider thing that I did want to say, um, where generally I think there, there's some people in the community or sort of the movement who want everybody to either be passive or either everybody to be aggressive or have the same style. And I think we're going to have right. different styles. Right. Um, but even though like with a lot of uh, people who are generally known to be aggressive, there might be certain things that they say, certain means that they promote that I very much disagree with. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, my approach is to say, I disagree with that thing or that technique mm -hmm. or that, uh, you know, approach of something, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to negate the person, you know, um, there's so many, for example, you, you know, there's a lot of things in your approach, Armin, that, I, you know, are different than mine. Mm -hmm. And I would have a different sort of approach to, but I know that you're doing this from a place of wanting to help people, you know, evaluate Islam, to be able to come out of Islam if they're questioning or if they're living miserable lives or just to embrace the truth. And so I 100% support what you're trying to do, even though there'll be times where you're means or your approach or some of the um, rhetoric I, I may disagree with. Right. And I think that's the right approach where we can sort of a la carte disagree with things with each right. other without throwing each other under the bus. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I think yeah, that's well said. Yeah. yeah there, there gets to a point where maybe, you know, somebody is just overwhelming with stuff that you disagree with and you're like, okay, well, generally speaking, I disagree with that person right you know or, or, it's uh, not, or their intentions is not even the right place. or yeah, yeah. yeah if their intention is wrong even if they're saying everything right i'm going to be suspicious no, but right. I, um, I think nope yeah we're going sorry yeah go ahead 
No, finish what you were saying. Uh, so, you know, so that that is something, an ethos that I want to try to help yeah. in this movement where we can agree, uh, we I, can disagree agreeably, and but we don't shy away from calling out where we disagree. Right. But that doesn't have to ruin friendships. That doesn't have to ruin the movement. Right, and right. even if we have different styles, we could learn from each other. Right. Sure. And, so, I, and I think, you know, if we have a four-hour conversation to talk about some of these things, right. we'll probably get on the same page. And, or at minimum, you'll see where I'm coming from. Uh, yes, and yes. I'll see where that you're coming from. Okay, guys. So I'm going to move it along. I, I think, Armin, by the way, your point was uh, is really good that if anything else had all of these ideas, it would be – and it reminded me of how, you know, the people who are believing Catholics are like, well, aren't you going to stop listening to Michael Jackson now? You know, because of his uh, child molestation charges and all that, and it's crazy because if Nike or anybody else had a had thousands of child abuse victims and they tried to right. cover it up, that company would be shut down. But the Catholic yeah. Michael Jackson is not a, f a fair comparison because I don't I don't even know if it's he was acquitted. He was acquitted, yeah, and we but don't they, know. They, yeah, yeah, they have way more case proven cases against proven them. cases. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. anyway, so patron questions. The first one from Robert Wheeler. I already said which ex-Muslims did Sahel mentor from behind the scenes, if he can divulge that information, and have any of them been on the show before. So. Um, I think mentorship is a bit of a strong word. I, I think, you know, so I, humble. You know no, I, I think I put stuff out there. Um, you know, um, Abdullah Samir has co complimented me before as having uh, influenced some of um, the things in his approach or, you know, the way he might uh, do stuff. But I, I don't, you know, uh, I don't see it uh, as that way. I mean, I've been very involved right from the beginning with XMNA, a lot in their online spaces. Mm. And um, so I think some ideas have just kind of percolated there generally. But I think, yeah, um, uh, yeah I, I wouldn't really characterize it as that. I think there's a lot of great leaders in the community who've, who've just come into uh, the forefront on their yeah. own. I, I would say that you're one of them. And I think that one of the things that you do is you've physically gone out into the community. You go into these meetups, and I think there's a lot of young people who come in looking for the guidance, and then they see you, and then they talk to you. And especially with your approach and how, you know, I guess agreeable you are and how compassionate you are, and you know, along with a sexy voice, I'm pretty sure that has something to do with it. I think that that uh, is apparently I have a future in ASMR videos. <laughs> you do, no, but please you are you are a you are a very huge asset to the ex-Muslim community, right. even exactly. way before so. you even came out as uh, public. So yeah. most people don't know that because most of what you've done was been behind the scenes so far. Right. Yeah. Great. Second question uh, from Matt Hems: Why is abstaining from alcohol? You said that you still abstain from alcohol. Yeah. Why is that, or any indulgence for that matter, of value? Quote. Well, so I think, um, and I talk a bit about this, I think, in my um, essay called, or it's a treatise, it's called My Beliefs, a treatise, uh, really briefly. Um, but I'll, I'll give, uh, you know, I, I, like I'm, I'm not, you know, 100%, uh, you know, like everything a Muslim does. But uh, something like alcohol, for example, A, there's sort of um, a momentum from just not drinking, you know. At 19, when I started questioning, and I, I was at university, I was living away. I said to myself, you know, other friends are drinking. And I would look at it, and maybe it was the Islamic apologetics, which I kind of agreed with, that, you know, there are, you know, people can get carried away with alcohol, it can be addictive for some people, things like that. I said to myself, if I don't have a craving for it, do I really need to take that chance? And in my own, my own view, I look at it and say, in modern times, we've got 
airplanes, trains, cars, buses. Um, we're more aware of things like alcohol's effect in domestic abuse, people making drunken mistakes that they regret, uh, ruining relationships and things like that. And a lot of people can say, look, you know, if you can handle the alcohol, it's not a problem. But I'm like, look, if I don't, you know, if I don't know that until I'm sort of, you know, once I know the taste, if if I really want it now, I can't I can't put the genie back in the bottle. So for me, it was a cost benefit and said, you know what, if I don't really need it, then I'm just going to choose not to do it. And uh, I've got to credit Islam for at least planting the idea that that is an option, because sometimes in mainstream culture, it's not seen as an option for people. Mm. Right. I mean, I, you're not missing much. I drink alcohol and it's not that. Yeah. Not that and most good. people yeah. are fine with it. You know, I, I think I actually have a bit of an addictive personality. Sometimes when I'm stressed, I'm like, oh, I'll just have another cup of tea. I'll just, you know, it'll perk me up a little bit. I'll keep going. Right. I'm like, what if I really liked alcohol and that became a crutch? And I, right. I don't want to go there. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I, and that's the same with other drugs. You know, I, I think um, I think psychedelics have some use, uh, especially if people don't, you know, not using them habitually, just. I'm not sort of in the, you know, recreationally doing it, but I've heard about people using things like ayahuasca for a life review mm. and you're, you know, if you got a proper setting and you've got people who are watching over you and, you know, or in, um, in medical situations to help with trauma and things. So I think there's uses for that. But one of my big things is that even though I believe these religions are false, I think they're all man-made and there's some wisdom in there. Oh, and so, no. So, yeah, I, I think accidental, of, accidental wisdom. Not sure, accident. sure. Right. It's it's man made. The things that are, <laughs> the things that sometimes work are man made. So I say, you know, you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of some of those ideas. The baby but is I a think problem. Should, yeah. So what I say is, but people want to reform, and I say, no, forget it. Just throw it out. Right. Start with a clean canvas. Yes. Okay. And, and pick and choose the things on top of a clean canvas that actually resonated and made sense because religion doesn't own those good things just right. like religion doesn't own community. But, but, but when you're picking endowment. and choosing, you don't have to even go to the Quran to pick and choose. You could just I'm not start... going to the Quran. I'm just yeah, going yeah. to my, you know. Yeah, but I'm just yeah, saying when I... you say religion sometimes have good messages and stuff like, yeah, but why waste time looking looking for a needle? You know, they're you know? not unique. Uh, I think... I'm not doing that approach. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, I think, think he's saying that from yeah, his yeah. experience, it came from that. So yeah, I I should also mention that I actually didn't drink either until I was like 27 or 28, uh, and uh, even after that, even now I'm not such a big drinker. But so my... I agree with Armin. I don't think you're missing a whole lot. Yeah, my so... dad actually made me drink vodka when I was four, so I hate it. <laughs> Um, so I don't drink when I grow like it worked actually I they, they did that with both cigarettes and vodka and I hated both of them and most of my like in Iran most of my uh, classmates were drinking and smoking and I hated it so much that I never touched any of it until much later I do touch on some of this in my video near the end and I talk about you know human beings we do thrive on structure we do sometimes need some guidelines for ourselves yeah um to but we need better ones absolutely yeah, yeah. okay right, guys next uh, i'm gonna go up uh for next. a couple of more questions because my my kid's calling me we now, should, so. i promise all the patrons that we do all the questions i know so, we will we're okay. gonna do it all there's not a whole lot left okay. um ahmadiyat sect uh, so this is from laura carson she's saying are you looked at the same if you leave the religion as others who leave more mainstream sects? Are you now an evil apostate or are you now viewed as anyone who is never Islamic? And I, I think we covered some of this. Yeah, I, I think we did. Yeah. I, I, you know, a, a lot of the blowback 
hasn't really hit me directly yet, but I know it's hitting my family. But most of it is like, why is he talking about this? Now, there'll be some apologists who are like, oh, brother, you should have studied and you didn't, you clearly didn't read or you're not being objective <laughs> or simple things like that. And I'm like, yes. have you guys even looked at my website and right. looked at the material? Stop the ad hom and go attack my actual ideas and my arguments. Right. And there's people saying ludicrous things on Twitter. Even one guy who I've known since we were children, and he's lived in a different city for a long time. And I'm like, dude, it's so ludicrous. You want to attack me? Attack my ideas. I dare you. Mm. Go, go put an essay together right. and you know, refute an argument. And then let's showcase your essay against mine. Mm. And then let's look at which narrative just seems more cogent and believable. That's how we decide. Yeah. I, I th again, very well said. So, um, uh, Veronica, this is more of a comment. Uh, she's saying, I thought I was having difficulties trying to get a UK passport, but apparently I'm having it so easy. So, yeah, a lot of people are talking about the whole passport thing. And then finally, uh, really the last question here is from Adam, and he's saying, is this live? Yeah. Yes, no, one. Is. I want to highlight one comment from uh, Blonde Infidel. She's, uh, she actually mentioned that Ben, Aff uh, ben Affleck has done a lot for ex-Muslims, which is actually true. A lot of the ever since Ben Affleck came out uh, on Belmar, a lot of ex-Muslims that were behind the scenes and in the closet just decided like, okay, that's enough. I'm coming out and I'm gonna fight this bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we thought, look, we need to speak up because it's getting so misrepresented. We're from these communities. We know these stories. We have to speak up. It's our moral duty. Right. Um, all right, so I feel okay, guys. Ali I'm is, oh, sorry, my yeah. wife's about to behead me, literally. <laughs> there you go. If you guys heard that, anyway. So um, I think that's the end of the patron questions. Do we have any more? Or no, that's I about it. I think. Okay, guys. Ali is getting distracted, so let's end this right now. Yeah. Okay, all guys. All right. Thank you, Sahel. Thank you. We're still Bye. broadcasting. Okay. All right, guys. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, all the patrons. Thank you to uh, Adam, Veronica, um, uh, Downing, uh, Amadea, Robert Wheeler, Blonde Infidel, uh, Matt, uh, um, Mars, uh, everybody, all you, John Camacho. Thank you, everybody, and we're going to see you next time. Thank you, Sahel. You're a rock star. All right. Thank, thank you, you guys. All right. All right. My pleasure. Okay. The Secular Jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends, write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions, or head over to secularjihadists.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.